Blog Talk Radio. Hey everyone, come check out the Proof Negative Radio Show here on FreedomizerRadio.com Monday through Thursday, 9 p.m. to midnight Eastern, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. on the Pacific Coast as we fight the New World Order and rock the health freedom world together. Hello and happy Wednesday. This is not Proof. Um, This is Danielle St. John. Um, filling in for Proof today for his birthday. Happy birthday, Proof. I hope that you're having a great time. Um, I will be joined soon by Sabrina, one of our newest um, upcoming Freedomizer hosts. She'll be starting her new show soon, um, Collective Rewilding. I am the host of Seeds of Change every Sunday from 3 to 6. And like I said, I'm filling in for Proof. And uh, looks like we've got somebody in the chat. Hello. Um, this is Danielle St. John filling in for proof. Today is his birthday, and he is uh, taking the day off. So I'll be joined shortly by um, my, my co-host, Sabrina Gessler. Um, and while she's jumping on... Um, what are we going to talk about today? There's so much. There's uh, a lot in the news. There's a lot to talk about um, to get ready for if the news is true. Um, Sabrina's new show is going to be focused on, um, you know, being the, the collective rewilding show. Is going to be focused really on taking back resources, which I'm a, a big fan of, especially when it comes to uh, gardening. Um, not gardening, but food production. Um, and, you know, there, obviously there's a lot of other things that we need to master if we're going to um, survive what we all know is coming. Most of the people listening to the show anyway um, knows what's coming. And, um, you know, another big part of it is, is um, you know, building things, like building houses, building structures, um, which is something that I'm, I'm kind of inept at. Um, my father-in-law recently passed away and he was a tuck pointer, um, which is building, well, not just chimneys, chimneys being a a staple of it, of the, of the industry. Um, but side, you know, side, anything really that has to do with bricks, right? Yeah. Fireplaces, things like that. Um, sidewalks, you know, all, all, all of these things. And, uh, thank you. Um, responding to the person in the chat. So, so, you know, what, what do we have to do to understand these um, endangered um, professions, um, trades, right? Who's going to, who's going to know how to build the fireplaces? Um, Who's going to know how to, uh, there, you know, there, what I was, I actually follow a guy, um, on Facebook, um, who does thatch roofs, so straw roofs, you know, and, and it's possible that we might have to get to that. So, you know, I think that these are the kinds of people that we need to be adding to our circles. You know, there's a lot of, there's a vacuum kind of going on right now when it comes to the media and, where we get our information and and with these dying trades 
that are vital. Um, you know, I, I brought up my father-in-law. I feel like there's this man was a library um, that's lost to us now. Uh, our elders know so much about us, about our civilization, and how to build things that, you know, this society really doesn't. So, you know, when it comes to food, when it comes, so that's what I focus on on my show, Seeds of Change, is that um, we need to take back our resources. We need a non-hostile takeover of our resources, starting with food, news, and health. So, as somebody who believes in that and as somebody who wants to make the cushion for what comes next um, as soft as possible, this is what we have to do as a society. We have to take back food, news, and health first, and the rest will follow. Obviously, buildings, you know, we're talking about uh, roofs and, and fireplaces. Um, you know, these kinds of, of professions are, are dying. They, those should come next, but once we can free ourselves from this system that, you know, isn't really there for the people, that's there for other entities, will we actually be free? We have, you know, kind of a, uh, a rare, possibly unique time in history where we can actually, as people, take back our freedom. We talk about the United States being the land of the free and the home of the brave, but what makes us free? Well, elections make us free. That's the first thing that I can think of. Elections make us free. So if you believe that our elections are stolen, then we can't just vote harder to get out of this mess that we're in. I don't need to talk about the problems. The problems are all over the news. Um, the problems of the military, you know, being the biggest killing machine in the history of, of humankind. The, we know what we're, we're um, hyper-focusedly aware of the problem. So um, we, we can't vote. The, the mechanism in which we claim our freedom is not there. And, and it's really interesting because the left and the right both agree on, on this. You know, I, I came from the left, I've, I've come so far, but that was my reality was I, I was a, a liberal. I was ready to vote for Hillary. I was ready to vote for her, you know, because I was so busy and so indoctrinated that I, um, was, I was not anywhere near the, you know, the thinking of we were anything but free, very indoctrinated. And I've, I've had a, a long journey um, since then. My very libertarian mother said, why don't you look into this Bernie Sanders guy? And I, I listened to Bernie Sanders. That's where I started was, was Bernie Sanders. And, um, he, you know, that, that was the start. What came after that is where I am now. So, you know, I make amends every day for, for supporting that system. But at this point in time, both the left and the right knows that this mechanism is broken. And, and how do we fix it? 
Um, I think that we can't fix it with regular um, channels, so we just ignore it and start over. We withdraw consent. We turn our backs. We stop participating. And that isn't just going and living off-grid, you know, going and, and starting. You know, I've got some good friends like um, Gerard Kenyatte Hay is a great follow. Um, he went from believing in this system to going off-grid. And not off-gridding, but new-gridding is what he does. He bought land in West Texas and um, is doing amazing things. That, you know, that's definitely an option for a lot of people. But there are still people who, people who live in cities. You know, what, what do we do? Like, for people who live in cities, is it just going to turn into a mad max kind of situation or can we through cooperation realize that we're all slaves to this system realize that understand that elections are not going to save us and um take it back and a non-hot resources not anything else resources we're not talking about taking back government because well, the government, left or right, is what's keeping us enslaved. Once we turn our backs to this system, what are our possibilities? And that's what we explore every week on Seeds of Change. Now, Sabrina Gessler is another amazing, in my opinion, patriot. Um, and she is, she's starting uh, her own show. Um, I'm going to go to break really fast. Uh, just give me a minute or so, and we will be back. Um, I'm going to see what the technical difficulties are with Sabrina. We'll be right back. Please check out the Barefoot is Legal radio show right here on Saturdays, 1.30 p.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. That is 10.30 a.m. to noon Pacific Time as we show you all about your barefoot rights and living a barefoot lifestyle. And for more information about the 501c3 nonprofit Barefoot is Legal, please check out barefootislegal.org. Please check out the Proof Negative radio show, Monday through Thursday, 9 p.m. to midnight Eastern, that is 6 to 9 p.m. on the Pacific Coast, with excellent co-host, outstanding guests, and lots of great conversation. We can even take your calls. The number is 319-527-6208, and just press lucky number one, and you will be on the Proof Negative radio show. Okay, then I'm ready. I'll let right. you go. Awesome. Okay. Right. So, hello. We're back. Um, looks like Sabrina is coming in. She's, um, this is um, a fairly complicated system that we use. So, and we actually, this is something that I didn't know when I was uh, first hosting. So if you're thinking about hosting a show, you should definitely talk to Proof or me. Um, I'll leave my info in the, in the chat. But um, this is, I didn't, I thought I was just going to be the talent, right? But this is actually like producing a show as well as, um, 
uh, being the uh, the on-air talent. Um, and Sabrina, oh, she's gone. Hold on. So uh, before we get thrown into the deep end, we do kind of a, um, a, a training on the software. There she is. Um, yes, definitely press one, Sabrina. Um, I'm just going to let you in. I think I think that this is hello, Sabrina. Sabrina, press one, please. Ah, she dropped. Okay. See, see what I mean? This is like a, you know, at at first I remember my first show. I think it's um. Oh, there she is. Sabrina, press one, please. Um. I remember sitting there at the beginning of my first show being like, um, I think this is the button I, I push. I think this is, it won't let me connect. You're connected. Um, let's see. Hmm. One second. You were connected. Okay, so like I was saying, it is a little bit um, difficult at first to maneuver this. Yes, press one if you can, I'm just, or if not, I'm just going to let you. Ah, she's gone. <laughs> oh, there you are. Hi, hold on, hold on. Hello. Trying to override, trying to override the one. Are you there? Say, say something if you're here. Sabrina, say something. Yeah, Sabrina, don't hang up. Hold on. Ah. Hello, test one, two, three. Hello. Yes, you're there. Can you hear me? Can't hear me? Hello? Okay, hold on. Technical difficulties. Let's try. Let's go to an ad. I we heard you, Sabrina. Um, let's see. Ad. Let's do play an ad. Please. Can't hear me. Okay. Okay, and she's gone. Um, that's okay because we're going to go to a. Uh, here we go. Just into the promo. Here we go. Please check out the Barefoot is Legal radio show right here on Saturdays, 1.30 p.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. That is 10.30 a.m. to noon Pacific Time as we show you all about your barefoot rights and living a barefoot lifestyle. And for more information about the 501c3 nonprofit Barefoot is Legal, please check out barefootislegal.org. So Dr. Fauci went on CNN 
And I bet he didn't expect to get pushback. I bet Dr. Fauci didn't expect that he was actually going to be confronted with actual science instead of the, the BS that he spews every time he's talking. So yeah. Dr. Fauci is the biggest liar from COVID. There's no bigger liar than Dr. Fauci. He lied about gain of function. He lied about funding gain of function, which gave us the virus. He lied about where the virus came from, and he called you a white supremacist. I, I, how, how does Cornell not see that they, that's what they do? They call anybody who goes against the establishment now a white supremacist. That's what they did if you said that the virus came from the Wuhan lab, which is where it came from, and it was funded by Dr. Fauci. He funded the research that gave us that virus, which means if you believe COVID killed millions and millions of people, he's a mass murderer on the level of Hitler. Unless you don't believe in science. Oh, so, so here he is, and he's confronted by Michael Smirkanish, of all people. Michael Smirkanish. You did not see that coming. Smirkanish, of all people, bringing up real things. I want to say tip of the hat to Michael Smirkanish. Yeah. Great job he does here. Great job, Michael Smirkanish, who I normally uh, don't agree with. But uh, here we are. I'll join with anybody to do good and nobody to do bad. I mean, normally I say I have to take a Smirconish in the morning, but I'm going to hold off on one day for this great job he did. So watch this. On the screen, the most rigorous and comprehensive analysis of scientific studies conducted on the efficacy of masks for reducing the spread of respiratory illness, including COVID-19, was published last month. Its conclusions, said Tom Jefferson, the Oxford epidemiologist who is the lead author, were unambiguous. There is just no evidence that they, masks, make any difference, he told the journalist Mayan Damasi, full stop. But wait, hold on. What about the N95 masks as opposed to the lower quality surgical or cloth masks? Makes no difference. None of it, he said. Well, what about the studies that initially persuaded policymakers to impose mask mandates? They were convinced by non-randomized studies, flawed observational studies. How do we get beyond that finding of that particular review? So, by the way, that's not just any review. That's the gold standard of medical reviews and the guy who did that review is the top guy in a world doing those kind of studies so that's it's over there is no medical evidence that masks work to stop an airborne virus like covid there is there never was before covid which is why fauci and rachel maddow and everybody told you not to wear masks and then Fauci said he lied when he told you not to wear masks. So he's already an admitted liar. But the lie was the second time when he told you masks work to stop uh, the airborne virus. They don't. Not even New York Times. Not even the New York Times. Hiding this. That's right. That was in the New York Times, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that means the jig is up now in Canada. They got people protesting, putting masks back on in Vancouver. So... They're getting different news, I guess, but... It's not science. So yeah. here, here, Dr. Fauci, watch what he says back to this. So he just presents him with incontrovertible evidence from the gold standard of, of studies with the number one study guy in a world doing this. And what does Dr. Fauci say back? Let's listen. Yeah, but there are other studies, Michael, that show at an individual level for individual. When you're talking about the effect 
on the epidemic or the pandemic as a whole, the data are less strong. But when you talk about as an individual basis of someone protecting themselves or protecting themselves from spreading it to others, there's no doubt that there are many studies that show that there is an advantage. When you took at the broad population level, like the Cochrane study, the data are less firm with less regard firm. to the effect on the overall pandemic. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about an individual's effect on their own safety. That's a bit different than the broad population level. What? So what he just said was gibberish. So what he's saying... Exactly, exactly. All right, I think maybe Sabrina's with us. Let's see. Hold on. One sec. There we go. Can you hear me? Hello? Can't hear me. Can't hear me. Um, hello, Sabrina. Oh, boy. Okay. Oh, she's muted. Sabrina, can you hear me? That shouldn't let me push this one. Can you hear me? Hello. No, it's not working. Can you hear me now? I can hear you. Yes, I can hear you, too. I think oh, we're yay. connected. Okay, yay. I've been talking this whole time. I don't understand what could possibly have been different. Did you push mute and think... unmute by chance on the... I did. Okay, that's I... just now, and it started working? Not on the screen on my microphone. Yeah. Whatever, it's, it's working, right? Yay. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome. Hello. Um, so I already plugged your show to death, but I would love you to talk about your show. Um, that's and and the times I I can't even remember the time and the date you chose. So um, I would. Well, we love... are talking about that as well because the other half hour or the other half of the block that I'll be utilizing may end up being a nonprofit disc golf club, but theirs is not going to work for Friday, which was the spot that I had chosen. So they're mm. working that out. I may even end up picking two slots. Things are going crazy, busy in my world, so I may have another thing that I want to promote. I'm just kind of playing it by ear a little bit with the time. Um, unfortunately, he just talked to his club on Friday or on Sundays, so that's still a little bit in the works. But if we were to pick a Friday slot, let me come over here so I don't lose the screen and look at the shows. Um, well, the Friday slot yeah. would have been from an afternoon slot. Yeah. Uh, and and that's cool. We can all we can figure out the deal. I was I was actually just talking um, while we were trying to get you on. Is that these shows are not just shows, right? Like when you hear about like uh, on air personality, when you when you um, say a DJ you listen to in the morning or something like that. There's there are uh, people who are on the show and guest hosting and hosting and things like that. And then there's also people in the background producing the show, promoting the show. Um, you know, coming up with the, the scheduling of the show. Like, I kind of feel like when you're a host in this, on this station, you kind of get a crash course in everything. Um, uh, the, the tech, the um, promotion, the, you know, all of it, all, you know, and being 
um, you know, producing and being the on-air talent. So, um, but now with your show, we were just talking about um, this, basically the collective rewilding, rewilding concept where there are um, lost arts um, that we want to bring back that, you know, to basically get us out of this um, owned state and, um, people like Gerard um, Kenyatta Hay and you and me and, and um, many, many others are coming up with ways of, you know, living in cities and dealing with uh, false scarcity um, and people who say screw it and going not off-gridding but new-gridding or off-gridding. Um, and I really feel like the concept of collective rewilding is um, – you know, encompasses all of that, all, all of those states of mind. Uh, as it's long as it's getting us that, away actually, from Danielle, when you talk about lost arts, the one that immediately comes to my mind is a native pottery style. Um, it's black pottery, and it's known only from the Ute tribe, and it had been lost by their tribe. They did not know how to make it anymore, and a lady went and took the knowledge that was still there from the tribe and played with it. And she believes that she's come very close, if not pretty much dot on with this lost art from the Ute tribe in the Southwest Four Corners region. And it's so many things. Uh, Melvin Cordell is Cordell artisan brick making, and he's still playing with his name. I kind of threw that one out there. He didn't have a title yet. He actually hand molds, how hand presses bricks it's so so vast the textile world we're featuring wild craft dyeing and she goes around the world she's a conservationist so she gets the opportunity to travel in her educational arena and then utilizes that for creating dyes from around around the world through natural processes there's so much out there and it's just right. amazing yeah, a- absolutely. And I um I hope that these are the kinds of things that you talk about in your show, but on a on a broader spectrum. You know, who's going to know how to build a chimney in 50 Exactly. Years? It's really amazing when you truly think about our day-to-day world. How much we take for granted. A really good example is a needle, sewing sewing thread needle. Think about the concept itself. What would we do if we didn't have that? And what it took to actually get to the point where we just have needles every day of any size, shape, uh, knitting needles, crocheting needles, all of these various needles, they took innovation and we've lost even the use of those tools. So all of that's going to be covered. My focus for uh, collectively rewilding being myself as that brand, it's an entire concept and an entire platform. And then the actual brand collectively rewilding is going to focus primarily on gardening and survival tactics, which you kind of touched on a little bit, I think maybe. And then we're going to host as many content creators as we can, because you really can't even begin to list all of the types of natural skill sets there there are available to us in this world. And nobody can know them all. That's why it's so great to get together. And I don't mean to, like, I, I honestly didn't mean to, like, you know, uh, diminish the importance of this lost art with, with this clay or with these Oh, I don't think colors. you did at all. There's so yeah. many. 
Yeah, but exactly. Like I, that's something that I probably would never have covered on my show, you know, uh, because I focus on things that are, um, you know, just uh, essential from what I know, you know, and, and basically like getting people to realize that even if you live in a city, there are things you need to start growing immediately, if not sooner, um, in order to withstand what's, what's coming. I know that there's a lot of people, I, I think, I know that Sabrina, I met you in the Bernie movement. Um, right. And, and I have to say, there's probably not going to be many people on this, on this network that are Bernie were Bernie people. So that'll turn some people off, but we've both walked away from this Bernie movement. But the thing that Bernie taught us is that this system is so broken that there's no alternative but to turn away from it and to well, right, start... they create the problem and then expose it and then provide the the prefabricated solution right absolutely so, yeah mm-hmm. and so if we're talking about people who believe in the constitution which i believe a lot of people on this network do um this constitution lays out things that we you know reasons that we have to walk away from the system and i i think that we're all well aware of the problems. So, so now basically what we're trying to do is provide a, a cushion, a soft landing for people who have never even, you know, hatched their own eggs, right? Like that seems to me like for a lot of like city dwellers, that seems like one of those things that's like, what well, I, I don't, you know, I've never done eggs. That's crazy. That's, you know, eggs come from farms and I live in the city. Well, um, well, the neatest thing about that is you can broaden out from chickens. Chickens get limited in cities and even in towns because of the crowing of roosters. So first yeah, of all, if yeah. you're ever approaching your town or city council about having chickens on your property, you can tell them that you're not interested in having a rooster to fertilize your eggs if you want to utilize chickens. If you'd rather have fertilized eggs, you can do things like Cornish game hens, quails, uh, uh, excuse me, pheasants. Those are not loud birds. And if you present that when you go and you have to get a permit in most places when you're not in the county, right? When you're in a, an urban or even a um, suburban setting, such as my hometown, it's small. It's generally eight to 10,000 people. You still have to go get a permit to have chickens or any sort of game like that in city limits. So when you're approaching your town or city councils, let them know that you can go without a rooster for chickens, or you can go with one of the quieter birds and provide your research so that you have it right there to show them what you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. Um, Now, I know that I live in in San Diego uh, proper. I live in um, the the city of San Diego. Uh, There's the city and the county. The county is, um, you know, it's, huge compared to a lot of counties um it's all basically all the way up to um to camp pendleton which is the largest military base in uh volume um it you know so so far um that that we know of anyway so it's a huge that san diego county is a huge um place but this i live in san diego city proper and we can have hens but we cannot have roosters now uh, we also own property in northern San Diego County where it, it's um, trust property. It's been in our family since it was a sketch on the back of, of a truck. 
you know. So uh, our great aunt Penny owned property, sold a house in Long Beach and moved to be closer to her sister when Carlsbad was just, you know, dirt bike uh, tracks, basically. And um, so we, you know, we, we built this house that had owned this house since the, the 70s, late 60s, early 70s, that um, is residential agriculturally zoned. So our property in Carlsbad where you see that we've got the retaining walls and the peach trees and we're building the, the big chicken coop, um, that is agriculturally zoned land. So technically we should be able to have whatever animals that we want regardless of noise because you know, you let's let's just face it, a horse is is past residential zoning laws. Like you, you decimals, decibels, right? Absolutely. Like, and you'll see that scattered throughout California actually. Right? Mm-hmm. That was something that I experienced a lot there. It's really neat. They have it here in Utah too. There's just random pasturage with a couple of horses on it in the middle of downtown Salt Lake County. It's it's like San Diego a little bit. San Diego proper is so big itself. And Salt Lake is actually really small. So when people think of Salt Lake, it's actually a bunch of townships all kind of mashed up together. And so yeah. you just see that. It's it's really neat. Those are totally different types of properties that Danielle is talking about. Absolutely, you don't need to go to your town or city council for those. Yeah, well, except they still, like, they if neighbors complain, they still say, no, you can't have roosters. Which Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah, I know. I know. And so, but I think they're wrong. It's for, like for the longest time, they've tried to tell us that we, because um, like I said, since this, this has been a trust property, it's been in our family for so long, um, we haven't really gone into the farming of it. My, my great aunt Penny did not have anything but a dog on this property, right? And we've taken back this land so much that, um, and we've looked into it, we've, you know, that, and we're using it as it's meant now neighbors start to complain like these people with HOA men- mentalities and uh, the longest time they tried to say that we could only have six hens because that's residential zoning for Carlsbad um, and then we they finally had to finally after years and years of fighting the city um, had to, to acquiesce and say yes you do have agricultural land but you still can't have roosters so you can have as many uh, chickens as you want. They have to be certain away uh, yards away from a dwelling, feet away from a dwelling. But we have a huge hillside that hence the retaining walls. Um, and so that's what we're up against. There's still anytime. Um, and here's a fun fact that chickens, hens, crow when they when there's no male around. So the most dominant hen will crow if there's no roosters around. So, you know, like that's, so what are they going to tell me next that I can't have hens because, and I've got it on video of hens crowing. Um, because That is no so male. interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. I, I'm yeah, in such a I, rural I, location when I'm around chickens that there's always a rooster. So, yeah, that's yeah. so interesting. So that's what we're up at. Like, you know, we could, I think it's almost time to start uh, talking about getting roosters because we've, you know, we've been hatching these, like we're trying to get an Easter basket full of, of hens. So hens that lay Easter basket colors, pink, gold, 
green, blue, you know, chocolate, uh, and selling those as like, um, you know, for, for starter packs of people in the city who want six That chickens. would be so cute. Yeah, right? Um, so we've had it like heartbreaking having to get rid of these like beautiful rooster like lavender orpingtons and, you know, silkies and, you know, these very bougie, you know, um, trying to get people to, to be sold on, on getting a backyard block, right? Because honestly, like I'm, I'm shameless. I'll, I'll use what I have to get people to start being less dependent on the system, right? And so if we can get people to start getting like bougie flocks or getting vegans to rescue chickens and give their, their eggs away to their neighbors so that they also stop participating in the system, I'm all for that, right? If I've got, you know. Every time. Yeah, yeah. so um it, so anyway um that's kind of like the all of these things are what we're exploring on our our channels and we're using everything that we can um especially radio um live streams social media all of these things to raise awareness of 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 you know how to break free of the cycle absolutely and there are so many ways that you can when you talk about um starting these gardens, that is absolutely something that everyone should do, as Danielle has even done, taking over sidewalk plots. I support that in 100 ways. There's another area that people neglect a lot as well is foraging. I have a friend yes. in Ohio, and he's in just smack dab urban Ohio. He did not believe that there were any items he could forage, and he walked through this area, and of course, it is going to have pollution on it, right? You're in the middle of a metropolis. But if you're starving, it's better to have food in the end. So we have to realize where we live. If we do live in the middle of a metropolis and we're in a moment of food shortage, they're trying to push that more and more. Also, I don't know how deep we go on this channel, but the different land pieces that Bill Gates is buying up and the threats that they've made about the constitution of our food, let's just say, we may want to depend on things we can find that have pollution in them rather than what we know are in being sold to us, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've had a lot of detractors. Um, I was on a, um, I did an interview on the, what's it called? The um, Jesse Howe um, channel. Uh, anyway, but, uh, and he's, he's had big names on, on his channel, but the, um, you know, I, I was, I was asked on, um, you know, I'm sorry, hold, I'm sorry, I'm doing like three things at once, but can you go on about that? You know what, the politics is so out of my realm. I know who Jesse Holmes is, but I can't help you with the show title there. No, Jesse yeah. Howe, um, H-A-L-L, oh. H-A-L. Yeah, he does the... Um, the missing link. That's what it is. The missing link. Okay. I know again, just in the name. You can't drop names with me and think I'm gonna I'm gonna pull it out for you. I don't do the name dropping thing. No, but I yeah, do I'm things not, with the yeah, soil not, and all these great things over there, right? And I'm sorry. What were we uh what was the context with this? Well, so I was on his show and, and I'm getting like heckled in the com it was a live stream. Um and so I'm getting heckled in the comments about Oh, she doesn't know anything because I'm talking about sidewalk gardens, right? And um, and they're like, 
well, you know, don't you know there's poisons in the soil and poisons, for, you know, coming in from the air? And I was like, well, yeah, I do understand that. Um, and I also know that people can't grow year round like we can in San Diego. Right. So, um, you know, I said, but so even in San Diego, we should be trying to figure out how to grow indoors. Like that's something that, you know, even though we've got a perfect climate, people in Boston don't. So they really need to know how to grow indoors because, you know, when things go, go down, we're going to need to know how to grow food in our areas or we're not going to survive this. Right. That's what people keep talking about this mad max. Right. So this person in a, in a, in the comments goes, um, okay, well, she really doesn't know anything that, you know, anything about anything because don't you know that it's even more poisonous to grow inside than outside? Okay. All right, asshole. Go and starve to death then. You know what I mean? You really do have to consider a time where you might not have the ideal choices. And that's what we're talking about, right? We're not talking about going to Trader Joe's. We don't have that choice anymore. We don't even have Walmart. What are you going to do? Are you going to not eat? if you don't think that it's the most ideal option. Some of these people, I honestly think they're, they are betting that Walmart is just going to start, uh, keep stocking the shelves uh, <laughs> when they steal. You know what I mean? Like, I would hope that after what we went through and they again created that false scarcity, as you mentioned during these lockdowns, how they feel now. I would hope that they would have a little more sense of realism. It, exactly. Yeah. Um, but it, but it does seem like a lot of people are very doom and gloom. You know, what are you going to do? How are we going to ever, how are you ever going to like uh, defeat this on a cooperative level? You know, go get your, you know, um, what the Patriot supply, you know, freeze dried foods. And, you and- know, I think that it's the naysayers that really stop most people from getting in any sort of preparation at all. You have to start somewhere. And I began my journey with actually making purchases. I've learned all of my life. It's a lot easier coming from a rural area. But getting those preps started is so easy. You can go to the dollar store and get things like duct tape, seeds in the beginning of the year. Now, those aren't going to be the best seeds. They're not going to be heirloom. They're not going to be non-GMO but they're seeds. And if you can't afford anything else, you got to start somewhere. You can get yeah. little mini flashlights, all sorts of little things you can put into your tool prep. You can put in canned goods from the Dollar Tree, the Dollar Store, the Dollar General, Family Dollar. And recognize, though, when you put in especially things towards your tools, that those aren't going to be of the highest quality. So they're not going to last forever. I want to have things in my tool prep kit that are like flint napping tools. I have my glasses, my eyeglasses kit. I'm blind without my glasses. So I have the ability to create glass. I have a book for it. And I have the actual old-fashioned kit that you see in doctor's offices, eye doctor's offices. They're actually required to have them, even though they really don't use them. I have one of those. But you didn't get there overnight no matter who you are. I've been prepping since probably 2013 or 14 would be my guess. Really Mm. actually purchasing preps and setting them back. 
but I went through years where I couldn't add to my preps at all. I went through years where I had to use my food preps, not my deep freeze dried preps, but my canned good preps. Yeah. And you also have to keep in mind when you're prepping something like canned goods, you have to cycle those. They will go bad. The best by dates are still just a guideline, but at some point, even if I'm not absolutely certain it's bad, I'm not going to eat it anymore because you can't smell botulism. Yeah. Just some thoughts on the storage of items, right? You have to always be aware of rotation. Just like in a restaurant, in a a gas station, a grocery store, it's the same thing for your prep. Yeah, you check your egg dates and you check your milk dates, right? So why wouldn't you check your your prep dates? Now, but it's kind of interesting because I, I feel like the people that I interact with on a daily basis, like just a couple hours ago, I was in at the grocery store and I saw a man wearing wearing a mask, right? I doubt that that man, I doubt that that man knows anything about canning or anything about what a healthy egg yolk looks like or fill in the blank on, on being prepared for food, right? Um, Food, news and health. Those are the big three that I keep going back to. And I really do feel like that, that there's a there's going to be a lot of people in cities that don't that aren't prepared don't you know think think that botulism is great and and inject <laughs> well they don't even know what the word faces. means maybe right well you know? I mean Botox in, in uh you know does Botox is basically botulism so it like, is isn't it I heard that and I thought gosh I have read something about that. So um, but it's totally it's different when you have it going through your, your stomach and your um, digestive system than taking a toxin and putting it into your skin. Even though that's right. undesirable, in my opinion, as well, that's not going to kill you, whereas botulism, when you're eating it through your food, is going to have the high likelihood of killing you. Right? Yeah, it's but not a we, we live in a society where they have to write, do not eat toner on the side of pink toner. <laughs> Like, that's, that's a pretty big whoa, you know? Like, how are we going to... Well, let's like, be real. Most people yeah. that have no concept of where their food comes comes from, if there's going to be a climactic event, they're going to have to live off of the generosity of others or not. Yeah. <laughs> not being, not live. So that's what Collectively Rewilding really in its base premise is. Getting those folks who want to have that knowledge but never had access to it, the ability to get it now before it's too late, and they do have to depend on others or cease to be. Getting knowledge about food, getting knowledge about what to do when you have to replace a clothing item. Honestly, how many of us would really know what to do if we had to start preparing our own clothes? If I had to, I'd have to start at the leather stage myself. I don't know how to take flax and turn that into linen. I don't know how to take the plant cotton and turn that into a cotton product. And so I'm at the end stage with providing information from a content creator about dyeing those linens. But my goal is to have someone that knows how to grow cotton and grow flax for uh, textile purposes. And then someone that processes that. I have a base idea of the weaving and spinning stage but the processes before that are a little more elusive for me, right? None of us can know it all. There's simply too much, but all of us can get better versed. And if we have a collective in our own world, 
where each of us are learning different skills. Of course, that's the best, but there are some real basics that all of us can get under our belt, such as what we've mostly been talking about here, the foraging, the gardening, and the very basic level of ranching or uh, domesticated livestock production, right? right? Whatever terminology one wants to apply there. Right, right, right. And that's where, and this is where Brother Ty (laughs) comes in. You know, people are quick to to dismiss Ty, um, but he'd be the one to know how to do the things that, that you're talking about in the, in the early stages. I I don't know know how one dismisses clothing and legal knowledge, right? How does one dismiss that? I don't know, but yes, absolutely. He would have a, a much better idea than I do, I'm sure. Amen, Seth. Um, yeah. So there, uh, here's one fun fact that I did learn. Ha, you, have you ever heard the, the term um, so poor you don't even have a pot to piss in? <laughs> you didn't know what that was originating from her? Yes. Yes, I have heard of that. Mm-hmm. Who didn't know that? Um, you were saying, I thought you said you just learned it recently. Did I mishear you? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I, yeah, not too long ago. A pot to piss. What? I've heard that my whole life, but what it actually means um, is exactly different. what it says. <laughs> well, yeah, but people, so in my mind, um, it's like, okay, so you don't have a bathroom, right? No, nope, they had up. pots that they kept under their beds that they would utilize rather than going outside to the outhouse if they didn't well, have. But in this, in that instance, it has to do with tanning leather. Oh, yes, the urea that breaks down, you know, that your your urine is very comparable to ammonia, right? It essentially, when it breaks down, it's a, a very ammoniacal process. And so when you're yeah. uh, re- removing the coloring from the leather and all kinds of things, but leather is a really good example. That's a part of it. Also, chalk is involved when you're working with leather. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, but that's part of that little mystery that, that Honestly, like, I don't have all of the pieces. That's for, for damn sure. But, like, when it comes to treating and, and getting, you know, a, um, a product to be used, you know, to the point where it can be used as clothes, um, mm-hmm. you know, urine is, is something that a lot of people um, used, utilized to, to do that. So, In Scotland, they would do what was called walking the wool, like walk yeah. to walk upon the land. And you'd... Yes. Yeah sit in a room with a group of women and they'd heat the urine and pour it down the bundle of wool that they were walking with their feet, mm-hmm. laying on their backs, just manipulating it with their feet, singing songs. and Singing songs, yes. Yeah, it's amazing the things that we've lost. And with um, what you're talking about, you know, you're taking it to a textile level. And of course, that's something that we don't think about. Also, though, Dealing with waste when there isn't a working sewer system is something that most people haven't considered. And that is one of the ways that they would deal with it in the day was to have a literal pot to piss in. And then, of course, yes, you could take that to stages of processing. Also, though, what would we do with our our waste, right? That's a a conversation that comes up in the prepping survivalist type world in a homesteading environment. You really want to think about how you would contain that kind of fecal matter as well. And it's all something that can be done so much more healthily than what we're doing it today as a commercialized setting. I had a professor in college, and they just literally brought it to our awareness. We put our waste 
into our water, that is absolute contamination. Why do you not go out camping and leave your waste? Because that's going to possibly contaminate the groundwater, right? But we put it into our water. There are so many healthier ways to deal with it. We could simply have a system that would have to use some sort of small amounts of fluid, yes, to manipulate it into essentially compost heaps. And that's what you would do on a smaller level. But in the moment of surviving, you still have to deal with your waste. It's all a really big, complex thought process that none of us ever even take into account. If you're stuck in your home and you're worried about going out because things are going on around you, what are you going to do with your waste if you're not able to use your sewage system? So those are all the different kinds of things that can get covered. Textiles, survival, gardening, foraging, working with clay, forming bricks. Um, one of the content creators that I'm hoping to work with, Callie Kim 29, she has yes. uh, modified her channel. Yes, please. Go I want to be her personal friend, and I want to have brunch with her. <laughs> she lives. Close. Oh, she's amazing with what she's done, um, terracing and things. That's so valuable for Californians. That's, right? And that's what I have in my backyard going on, and that's kind of why I want her to come over. And but because she had hers done by some kind of like backyard makeover HGTV show, oh, right? Oh, nice. I that's was not she, aware. Yeah, yeah, I think that's where she got started. Um, mm-hmm. I think so. If I, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, whoever. No, that listening. sounds probable. Yeah, she's yeah. a very professional setup. She's amazing with the way that right. she presents her material. And we we dealt with a virgin hillside, just um, with landslides, because back in the day we all just thought that you know this big thick ice plant would do the the job of retaining a hillside when it really is just too heavy and, and pulls it down. Um, well, um, it needs to have biodiversity, right? It could be an element correct. of yeah. a hillside garden as long as it's not invasive. If it's invasive and it's going to take over that hillside, then no, it, because yeah. you're right. Mm-hmm. It did, it, and it's a quarter of an acre. Oh, my goodness, and it pulled all that yeah. topsoil off. Yep. Exactly. And so that's what I'm having to deal with on this property here. I move so often, that's what I'm generally dealing with. I don't deal with these nice maintained things that I get to add to and add to over the years. I'm always trying to heal the places that I'm in. I don't really mind that, though, because it's given me a lot of experience in a lot of different climates with degraded environments. And let's face it, folks, that's what a lot of us are going to be facing, no matter what type of situation we're going into, whether it is something after an extreme moment, or we're going to buy our home, or we're going to buy an agricultural property, there's going to probably be degradation in that property. And this was probably the worst property that I've been to so far, as far as the quality of the soil. There was soil that was worse than filler soil, which isn't actually soil, it's called dirt, meaning it has no organic life, no, yeah. D-G. Um, is that what, like, I, I've heard it called DG. I've heard it called DG. D is in Delta, G is in Gorilla. You know, I'm uh, learning about that port, uh, part from a husband, and he didn't use that terminology. He called it filler dirt. I've heard it used as, you know, construction dirt. It's dirt that isn't formed from compost or topsoil, right? Not, non-organic yeah, no, matter. No living matter. Yeah, gotcha. Mm-hmm. And this had soil that was actually worse than that. I wouldn't even call it components of soil. I do not know what they had dumped 
into a part of this plot. And already I'm starting to see small signs of life in it. I'm really excited. This year I hope to be able to use my pH testing kit to find out a little bit more about what the components are to even that most nasty of areas. But we got weeds throughout the entire backyard when it was hard oh, packed dirt. It is amazing. Uh, people hear that and they think that that's not success. When you're coming from hard packed dirt, getting weeds that are not um, damaging, that don't have negative thorns and thistles and aren't big propagators as far as blowing seed, you're really on the path to getting that soil to where you want it. All of those weeds are positive as far as the soil is concerned. But you also want to try not to bring in weeds that are going to continue to work against you the whole time. So right. the false Sounds like now is the perfect time to bring in chickens then, right? It would be. If I were the owner of this property, I already have two dogs and a cat. I'm not going to stress my landlady out and ask her if I can bring in <laughs> any more agricultural type elements. But if we were to buy this property, there is an ideal little stretch that we would love to put. I actually am more interested in pheasants and quails because they're indigenous to this area, if not this specific area in this region. And I really like going towards that. And I think they're just such beautiful creatures. I love chickens as well. I would love to have a poultry yard. Every yeah. kind of critter I could possibly get in there. Well, right. But I, I kind of feel like chickens are like the peacemaker because it's like, okay, so your, your, your landlady may not be interested in, you know, or, or even like frazzled by the idea of pheasants and, and quails and things like that. But everybody loves eggs. You know, and so like even and even like if you've got neighbors that, you know, in, in you know, that are, are around you, you can give them eggs and be like, thanks for looking the other way. Thanks for loving, you know, what I'm doing. Kind of like to soften the, you know, whatever. Um, well, with I, the I kinda... pheasants and quails, you actually do use their eggs. Um, they're useful in the same exact manner that a chicken egg would be. Cornish yeah, but normies don't know that. Normies think that that's weird. <laughs> you, you know what they, I mean? I love pushing people's boundaries, though. But what I am thinking about pushing my landlady's boundary on is possibly an apiary or seeing yeah. if there's not some place in the neighborhood that would be conducive to allowing neighbors to have it happen would be an apiary. I would really love to help the pollinators. That's one of my big, big priorities. Yes. Um, I bought um, a beehive for the, oh, nice. um, for the farm years and years ago, though. Like, my, mm -hmm. I, I think we weren't quite ready for it at the time. It kind of, like, didn't – we never got a hive for it. We just bought the beehive because it was on sale at Costco. You know what I mean? Like, well, why not? Uh, it should still be usable. Yes, yes. Um, my dog eats bees for ah. sports. Oh, yeah, uh, I keep trying to tell her about deal. the bee population. She doesn't listen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, like, and, and again, we live in Point Loma, which is about 40 minutes away from the farm. Tiva's there like maybe once a week. Uh, so there's another dog there that I don't think eats bees. But honestly, like that's so important right now. I think that we should be having beehives um, everywhere possible because of all the pesticides and things like that that are killing off the, the hives. Um, that's another one that we should definitely have. Also monarchs. We, um, 
I don't know if you what your opinion on is of this, but monarchs are kind of a, um, in endangered. A lot of kind of, of endangered. Oh, they're quite. Uh, monarchs used to be a part of my childhood, and I don't even necessarily see a single monarch in the uh, given year. I haven't this year. I saw one yeah. last year. Yeah. So we. I, I go on a. Uh, I'm a dog walker by trade mm-hmm. at this point, uh, and. We go on a walk three to four times in a neighborhood about a mile and a half away. Um, we see monarchs a lot here, but like a mile and a you're half away. You're near the town, though, right? You're near the beginning and end point of their trip down where you're Am at. I? In, yeah, in, they, in San Diego? In Mexico is where they um, hibernate, I guess. I'm not sure if that's the correct term, but they hang on trees in massive groupings somewhere down in Mexico, and I couldn't tell you what part of Mexico. I do think it's up towards uh, the barriers between our states, but they are down in Mexico, so they're going to be coming probably across most of the border between our uh, countries. I don't think it's localized to just one area, but, yeah, you're going to be pretty pretty well on it. In fact, let me just look that up because I believe that the whole – I see them every day, um, and when I go on, uh, on this dog walk about a mile and a half away from us, I see 15 to 20 every dog walk there. That's where I get the passion fruit from, actually. So um, now my husband is the harbor master, and I, I keep saying new harbor master, but now just the harbor master of Oceanside, and part of his scope is to plant um, non-invasive species around Oceanside Harbor. And I, I have been saving um, little uh, uh, milkweed pods for a couple months now to give to him to plant. Um, hopefully that can, you know, that's North County. I live in San Diego, close to the border, very close to the border. Mm-hmm. So, and that's a big part of their migration path as I'm looking at it. I, I don't completely understand this National Park Service trajectory for the western portion. They don't have it as clearly detailed, but it looks like they do cross through a good portion of our border, not during the Gulf, uh, not do, uh, through the Gulf or New Mexico, Texas border area, but they're moving through pretty much the rest of that there. And San Diego is a hub, as is the Four Corners area. But as I said, we don't very many in Utah or in my hometown of Cortez, Colorado anymore, and they're straight in their paths. We should see them, and we don't. I wonder what's going on. Oh, the migration, or the population of the monarch is, is down tremendously. I thought it was listed as endangered. I will check on that. Um, well, okay. 85% yeah, so, in two decades is their declination rate. They've gone down. Well, I know that after I heard about about their decline, I planted milkweed. Oh, you no. Know? Yeah. And I think and I think a lot of people did. A lot of people did. And as part of their migration, you know, if I can if we can take their seed and bring it 30, 40 miles up to Oceanside Harbor, that's on the way. To the mic, they you know, go all the way to San Francisco. They're going in their migration routes. They're going all the way from the absolute border of California and Mexico up to around the San Francisco area, and then they kind of shift and head uh, northeast 
and hit in some of the upper quadrant there. And then they come back down, and that's where it gets a little more confusing because they don't have it completely listed the way they do for the East Coast side. But um, can't get as far as you'd probably want to to spread that. So you're absolutely doing a good thing. One thing to keep in mind always is trying to use the milkweed that is for your region, right? It'll grow better. It'll work better with the biodiversity of your area. And so to do that, you'd want to get Yeah, I know there's with... like East Coast version, right? And then mm -hmm. there's West Coast version. I think there's probably more than that, but there there are a lot of different milkweeds out there. A good place to go to make sure that you're getting the right kind is your cooperative extension offices, and you have them in every state here in the United States. So uh, through your universities, most of the time, uh, the Colorado cooperative extension offices through the CSU school, um, New Mexico, I want to say is NMS, NMU, but I'm not as certain there. ASU is for Arizona. So you want to look for those cooperative extension offices. And they'll many times give you free plants, free trees, tons of free expert advice on what you're dealing with, help you test your soil for free, all kinds of amazing things that you can get through your county cooperative extension offices. Right. I'm sure, yeah, and for, for what it's worth, I think that the milkweed in my region will translate from right by the border up to North County. You know what I mean? Right. Like, and mm -hmm. so for us, I think that we're doing everything that we can to, you know, um, to uh, approve to, um, you know, the, the migration to improve the migration. Um, so the, the, and the quality of the migration now, Central California, I'll, I'll ask my friend John Michael if uh, he can look up the cooperative, um, you know, uh, milkweed there and see if it's any different. That would be a good, uh, I guess, Probably experiment. throughout most of California, maybe up where you're getting into the colder parts of Northern California, it might change. It's going to be generally regions, right? So you may even share the same milkweed with Nevada. Arizona. Yeah, yeah, um, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, but but like that doesn't saying, mean like, that there's not a change. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I totally understand there's a change, but like as far as um, you know, make increasing the migration um, here in San Diego, we've got milkweed here down closer to the border, and my husband being the harbor master and in charge of planting uh, non-invasive species might further the flow. Um, I would say that you definitely have a pretty broad reach. I hope that's so. Wonderful. Oh, yeah. definitely. Mm -hmm, that's you know, wonderful. I, and, and, I, and I will use it to my full ability. You know what I mean? I feel Absolutely. like pollinators is such an important thing around here and food in general. Um, but you don't I have like, to be that well connected to have an impact either, right? Right. Um, you can join or start something in your own areas. There are so many different ways to begin working amongst your community. Community gardens don't require an individualized plot of land. If there are no community gardens in your region, they have what are called uh, neighbor share community gardens, and I may be getting the terminology a little bit wrong there, but essentially a neighbor that has land in their yard wants the garden but doesn't have the time or the skills or the motivation, whatever it may be, 
they right. offer plots within their actual city land spots to their neighbors, to their friends or family who come and do the maintenance and do the gardening when they don't have that for themselves. And then they get to take home half of the produce or whatever it is that you've worked out. Usually it's a cooperative agreement between the two parties, what's going to be planted. Uh, there's a little bit of work back and forth there. Sometimes the homeowner has no invested interest, uh, no vested interest in what they want planted. It's all going to be what we each set up. But there are so many ways. Doing the sidewalk gardens. Um, if you don't live in a place like San Diego, that doesn't mean that you can't go and start adding in some things like uh, marigolds, which are edible. Yeah. Nobody's really going to get mad at you for that. Snapdragons, the blossoms are edible. I'm, the leaves may be on that one as well. Nasturtiums, the leaves, flowers, and stems are edible on nasturtiums. And these are common garden plants. When you hear about restrictions in towns that you can't garden in your front yard, if you don't want to fight City Hall, which I encourage you if you do, but if you don't, there's still compromises. You could turn your entire front yard into what looks like some professional manis, uh, man, manis, oh my gosh, I cannot get that word out, manicured landscape when all it really is is flowers that you can actually eat. The number of flowers that are edible is almost limitless. Pansies, uh, roses, so many common flowers are edible. And you have to look to see what levels. Some of them, just the petals are edible. Some of them, the petals and leaves. Some of them, the entire plant. The dandelion, our ancestors brought that over when our ancestors were bringing things over because it was so useful. It is useful from the root through to, I believe, even the seed. You can use it as a dye, a coffee substitute. It's salad. The flowers are edible. The flowers make a jelly that tastes like honey. We did that one year. You can make uh, syrup out of lilac uh, flowers. It's beautiful. It's this clear, crystal, lavender color. Oh, my gosh. It was so much fun to make with my daughter. That's amazing. Yes, absolutely. I'm not sure if I've ever I've ever played this for you, but um, I'm going to play a 10-minute clip. Um, and this is um, a man named Ron Finley. Um, he's He calls himself the, the gangster gardener or the gorilla gardener. Um, I think I have heard of him. Uh, yeah, perfect. So for the, the audience here on the Proof Negative show, happy birthday, um, who have not heard this, I'm going to play... TED Talk, ick, I know TED Talk, but this is Ron Finley um, talking about his uh, gangster gardener, gorilla gardener, sidewalk garden um, in South Central LA. Are you, are you game? I am. Awesome. Okay. Three, two, one. I live in South Central. This is South Central. Liquor stores, fast food, vacant lots. So the city planners, they get together, and they figure they're going to change the name South Central to make it represent something else. So they change it to South Los Angeles. 
Like this is going to fix what's really going wrong in the city. This is South Los Angeles. <laughs> Liquor stores, fast food, vacant lots. Just like 26.5 million other Americans, I live in a food desert, South Central Los Angeles, home of the drive-through and the drive-by. Funny thing is, the drive-throughs are killing more people than the drive-by. People are dying from curable diseases in South Central Los Angeles. For instance, the obesity rate in my neighborhood is like five times higher than, say, Beverly Hills, which is like probably eight, ten miles away. I got, I got tired of, of, of seeing this happening. And I, I want to ask, how would you feel if you had no access to healthy food? If every time you walk out your door, you see the ill effects that the present food system have on your neighborhood? I see, I see wheelchairs bought and sold like used cars. I see dialysis centers popping up like Starbucks. And I figured, <laughs> this has to stop. <laughs> so so I, I, I figured that the, the problem is the solution. Food is the problem, and food is the solution. Plus, I got tired of driving 45 minutes round trip to get an apple that wasn't impregnated with pesticides. So what I did, I planted a food forest in front of my house. It's on the strip of land that we call a parkway. It's like 150 feet by like 10 feet. The thing is, it's owned by the city, but you have to maintain it. So I'm like, cool. I do whatever the hell I want. <laughs> since, I, since it's my responsibility and I got to maintain it, and this is how I decided to maintain it. So me and my group, LA Green Grounds, we got together and we started planting my food for us, fruit trees, you know, the whole nine, for vegetables. What we do, we're, we're a pay-it-forward kind of group, where it's composed of like gardeners from all walks of life from all over the city, and it's completely volunteering. Everything we do is free. And in the garden, it was beautiful. And then somebody complained. The city came down on me <laughs> and, they, and basically gave me a citation saying that I had to remove my garden, which this citation would turn into a warrant. And I'm like, come on, really? A warrant for planting food on a, on a piece of land that you could care less about? And I was like, cool, bring it, because this time it wasn't coming up. So L.A. Times got, got hold of it. Steve Lopez did a story on it and, and um, talked to the councilman. And one of the Green Grounds members, they put up a, a petition on change.org. And with 900 signatures, we were a success. We had a victory on our hands. My councilman even called and, uh, and said how they endorse and love what we're doing. I mean, come on, why wouldn't they? L.A. leads the United States in vacant lots that the city actually owns. They own 26 square miles of vacant lots. That's 20 central parks. That's enough space to plant 700 million, <laughs> 725 million tomato plants. Why in the hell would they not okay this? Growing one plant will give you 1,000, 10,000 seeds. Okay. When $1 worth of, of green beans will give you like $75 worth of produce. It's like my, it's my gospel. I'm telling people, grow your own food. Growing your own food is like printing your own money. <laughs> I, read, 
Thank you. See, I have a legacy in South Central. I, I, I grew up there. I raised my sons there. And I refuse to be a, a part of this manufactured reality that was manufactured for me by some other people, and I'm manufacturing my own reality. See, I'm an artist. Gardening is my graffiti. I grow my art. Just like a graffiti artist, where they beautify walls, me, I beautify lawns, parkways. I, I, I use the garden, the soil, like it's a, a piece of cloth. And the, and the plants and the, and the trees, that, that's my embellishment for that cloth. You'd be surprised what, 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 what uh, the soil could do if you let it be your canvas. You just couldn't imagine how amazing a sunflower is and how it affects people. So what, what, what happened? I, I have witnessed my garden become a tool for the education, a tool for the transformation of my neighborhood. To change the community, you have to change the composition of the soil. We are the soil. You'd be surprised how kids are affected by this. Gardening is the most therapeutic and defiant act you can do, especially in the inner city. Plus, you get strawberries. <laughs> I remember this time, um, there was this mother and a daughter came. They, you know, they were, they were, it was like 10.30 at night, and they were in my yard. And um, I came out, and they looked so ashamed. You know, and I saw them like, man, they, they, it made me feel bad that they were there. And I told them, you know, you don't have to do this like this. This is on the street for a reason. Um, it, it made me feel ashamed to see people that was this close to me that was hungry. And this, this, only, this only reinforced why I do this. And people ask me, Finn, aren't you free, afraid people are going to steal your food? And I'm like, hell no, I ain't afraid they're going to steal it. That's why it's on the street. That's the whole idea. I want them to take it, but in the same time, I want them to take back their health. There's another time when, when I, put a, I, put this, uh, I put a garden in this homeless shelter in downtown Los Angeles. These are guys, they helped me unload the truck. It was cool, they, and, and they just shared the stories about how th this affected them and how they used to plant with their mother and their grandmother, and it was just, it was just cool to see how this, how this changed them if it was only for that, for that one moment. So Green Grounds has gone on to plant maybe like 20 gardens. We've had like people, like 50 people come to our dig-ins and participate, and it's all volunteers. If kids grow kale, kids eat kale. <laughs> if they grow tomatoes, they eat tomatoes. But when, but when none of this is, is, is presented to them, if they're not shown how food affects the mind and the body, they blindly eat whatever the hell you put in front of them. I, I, I see young people, and um, they want to work. But they're in this thing where they're caught up. I see kids of color, and, and they just on this track that's designed for them um, that leads them to nowhere. So with, with gardening, I see an opportunity where we can train these kids to, to, to take over their communities, to, to have a sustainable life. 
and, and, and when we do this, who knows? We might, have, we might produce the next George, George Washington Carver. But if we don't change the composition of the soil, we will never do this. Now, this is, this is one of my plans. This is what I want to do. I want to plant a whole block of gardens just, where people can share in the food in the same block. I, wa I want to take shipping containers and turn them into healthy cafes. Now, and now, now don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about no free shit, because free is not sustainable. The funny thing about sustainability, you have to sustain it. <laughs> what I'm talking about is putting people to work and getting, and, and getting kids off the street and letting them know the joy, the pride, and the honor in growing your own food, opening farmer's markets. So, so what I want to do here, we've got to make this sexy. So I want us all to become evolutionary, renegades, gangsters, gangster gardeners. We got to change, of a, we got to flip the script on what a gangster is. If you ain't a gardener, you ain't gangster. Get gangster, with, get gangster with your shovel, okay? And let that be your weapon of choice. So, so, so. So, so basically, if you, if you want to meet with me, you know, um, if you want to meet, don't call me if you want to sit around in, in cushy chairs and have meetings where you talk about doing some shit, where you talk about doing some shit. If you want to meet with me, come to the garden with your shovel so we can plant some shit. Peace. Thank you. That's like my scripture. I don't know. That's like a gospel according to Ron Finley. I love it. What do you think? Sabrina? Are you there? Sabrina? One sec. All right, so Sabrina, maybe are you on mute? I don't know. Um, you might have lost Sabrina. Okay, so while we get Sabrina back, we're going to do, oh, no, not Sabrina. Um, we're going to do, uh, is Gavin Newsom saying that he was wrong about COVID? I think that means I was right because, uh, I'm not Gavin Newsom. Doing it again, Sabrina says. Um, interesting. So, say something, maybe? No? Okay. Maybe hang up and call back. I'm going to play... I'm going to play a, um, a video, or excuse me, an audio clip. Um, let's see. Maybe call back Sabrina. 
So Gavin Newsom went on with Chuck Todd, and he said we, he would have done everything differently on COVID. I think science took a bit of a hit. It should be alarming to all of us that all of a sudden how it became partisan. <laughs> should it be, Gavin? This is the first time hearing of this. <laughs> the first time hearing of it. By the way, I just want to re- remind everybody that uh, the average mortality risk over the last three years for those over 20 years old is 0.089%. That's the mortality rate from COVID over the three years. Adding the under 20s, if you add people under 20, it gets reduced to 0.065% fatality rate or mortality risk. Put it, that's a different. So, and let's remember that they pretended that they didn't know that COVID was never that deadly. It was never that deadly. That's the, that's the mortality risk. 0.065. But that's almost 20% more likely than... (laughs) So now, yeah. It's 100 times more likely than never. So if you're over 70 or over 80, then you have a concern. Or if you have a serious comorbidity, just like with the flu, you, you you have to watch out if you have serious comorbidities, or if you're over 80. But if you're healthy and under seven... 70. But first of all, this is the whole... That's for Delta, by the way, wasn't it? That's for the whole three years. Oh. This is said right here. This puts the average mortality risk over the last three years for those above 20 at 0.089%. And if you include the people under 20 years old, it goes down to 0.06%. And that comes from uh, Dr. Sonatra Gupta uh, from the U.K., and it wasn't until early February. And so they knew it was a low fatality rate. And here's what, so remember, let's yeah. in fact, he knew it was a low fatality rate because he was out dining with groups of people and none of them are wearing masks. And that's when there was a mask mandate. And that's when they had people's restaurants closed down. I thought he was corrupt, but it turns out he was ahead of the curve. Yeah. <laughs> Looks like he was a genius because he knew masking was was bullshit. Isn't that amazing? He, he was a genius. The whole table. They were like, are you sure, Gavin? Yeah, take him off. Take him off. This is all made up by Fauci. So here, let's watch their, let's watch their interview. Watch this. During COVID, um, you, you were pretty strict with the lockdowns here. And uh, it was an interesting piece in Harper's that sort of was criti- critical of your decisions from this perspective. You found a way to allow the motion picture industry and, so the, and, the, and the sort of the movie industry to get back to work. But you didn't allow people to grieve together at funerals or at churches. And that it sort of, and that this may be why there's such a polarized disconnect. What, what you prioritize, right? This is this anger between the populace and the elite, supposedly. Here you prioritize <laughs> this industry, but you, you know, you were tougher on those that just wanted to go worship. Um, what do you think? So now, Watch how many ways he doesn't address the issue or the question. Watch him not address. So Chuck Todd is saying, hey, obviously you let movies, movie yeah. studios. Tom Cruise is a friend. Who were, Boswell was, who were shooting movies in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, they're shooting movies. And they were allowed to do that. And they were allowed to set up picnic tables and have 100 people sitting at picnic tables eating lunch without masks. While directly across the street, they had restaurants closed down even their outside dining was closed down but because you were in a movie you could have an outside restaurant 
But if you actually had an actual outside restaurant, you were that was illegal. And so I said the reason why they're doing that with the movie business is because the banks are invested in those movies and they run the government. And so they so he knows where his bread is buttered. He's not going to against Wall Street or the banks. And so the banks told him, you better let this movie happen. We got money invested. And so he did. And that's exactly why he did it. But watch watch him try to avoid this question and obfuscate. Why why were movie studios allowed to open up a hundred seat cafes outside when people who actually had already existing outside cafes had to close? And here's his here's his non answer. Yeah, I think there's a lot of humility, and we didn't know we didn't know, and it was hardly I. Uh, it was we collectively. I understand that. Oh, see, so that's the whole 9-11 thing. Nobody could have seen this coming, although everybody could have seen that coming. And so that's the, well, everybody's wrong, so nobody's wrong. That's what he's trying to say. Every, everybody's wrong, so nobody's wrong. By the way, uh, here we go. I think all of us, in, in terms of... By the way, did Chuck Todd just ask an intelligent question? <laughs> yeah. Isn't that wild? They must have turned up the journalism knob to 11. <laughs> it's a... I like how he says anger between populists and elites, supposedly. Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear him say that? Anger, yeah, be- right in, anger between uh, 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 populists and elites, supposedly. And he, sh- he should have put his hand up on the side of his mouth when he said that. By the way. Supposedly. <laughs> suppo- uh, uh, supposedly. It's still a good point, though. Did uh, somebody turn his reality knob up to seven? Not all the way. Qualified as supposedly. <laughs> Here we go. Our collective wisdom, we've evolved. We didn't know what we didn't know. We didn't know what we didn't know. You're a real fucking genius, Gavin. (laughs) We're all geniuses now. We're all geniuses now. (laughs) Hey, 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 Gavin, maybe you could share some of this genius collective wisdom that you have now about COVID with Cornell West. That's all I'm saying, maybe. (laughs) Gavin, who's the head of the curve on that one? That's weird. Experts in hindsight, we're all geniuses. But now. think about what we pro- what you, pro- all what you ended up collectively now. prioritizing. You're prioritizing industry, you know, well, in one and, and one specific one, but then didn't prioritize maybe ones that whose maybe values you didn't connect with. I don't think it's a binary. There was iterations within that theme. There was there was fits and starts. There were regional. <laughs> there were fits. There were fits and starts. There were fits and starts. He sounds like the dude now. Right from Big Lebowski. Hey man, there were lots of fits and starts, ins and outs, a lot of what have yous, moving pieces, lot of, lot of ins and outs, a lot of strands to keep in my head, man. A lot of strands in old Duder's head. Here we go. Frameworks uh, that had impacts more broadly defined. There were more industry specific uh, uh, frameworks. All of us went through a process. I mean, there was few states. That didn't go into aggressive lockdowns, including uh, Florida's Ron DeSantis. No, I understand that, but it was and more but of. With, but within the framework of the Who industry. opened the door? It's what industry got. Yeah. Link. Do you see how he's not answering the question? Yeah. The question is, why did you favor certain industries in why California? Why did I miss my Mima's funeral so movies could be made? Right. Uh, which I couldn't even go see at theaters because they were closed. Down. Yeah. <laughs> so you couldn't. Uh, you couldn't go to church. You couldn't go to church. You couldn't go to a funeral. My my best friend from comedy died during COVID. I couldn't go to his funeral. I don't even know if they had one. But they did make cocaine bear, so. But they did. And you could if you were, if if they had his funeral on a movie set, we all could have went. Yeah. Mm. If only that could have been cut content from the Barbie movie. Mm. 
and seeing which, yeah, which no, one all of it is All of it is legitimate in terms of reflection. All of it right. is legitimate in terms of processing lessons learned. We went through a process. I actually had at Sunnylands, which is the Camp David on the West Coast. Right. We brought together experts across the spectrum, people oh that supported God. our efforts, mm-hmm. people that opposed them, international experts. And we spent three days really reflecting, stress testing what we did right, what we did wrong. We're actually putting out a report as it relates to our own lessons learned. I think this country would do well to advance a similar construct, not through the lens or prisms of an ideology, uh, but through... You think there should be almost like a 9-11? I don't know. What is he even saying? He's not even saying... That hair is not good enough to cover this. It's not. It's not. That hair covers a lot, but don't so cover they this. did a lot of horrible things during COVID, and now he's trying to say, "Hey, we were all trying our best." No, we're and... all geniuses now, Jimmy. Yes. Yeah. Commission on what well, lessons learned from been, the pandemic. There's been versions of that, mm-hmm. uh, but they're immediately dismissed within the prism of our partisan frame. And right. so I'm at least trying to work across that and in context of all. What is local... something you do differently? Well, I think oh, the whole no, no. we would have done everything differently because we understand everything. We, we would have done everything differently. Is that one good thing? You mean you wouldn't have had vaccine mandates? You would you would have allowed people to go outside? You would have allowed people to go to work? You mean you wouldn't have had mask mandates either? Uh, you mean you wouldn't have closed schools down? You mean so that's everything? We wouldn't have dumped sand on all the skate parks. We wouldn't have closed the beach. Yeah, immediately <laughs> dumped sand on skate parks. They they got that. They can't Ooh. fix a pothole, but they can immediately wreck a skate park. Isn't that amazing? And I got to wait an hour for someone to come for a cop to come to my house when there's somebody outside with a gun threatening me. But if you're surfing, they had a they had a boat at you yeah. like that. So he says they would have done everything different. Good. We would understand outdoors as an example. Class nature. You want to shut schools down? You to try to figure out how to maybe have outdoor classrooms. No, that's not. Well, now you're getting. I'm being. But I think the nature. No, no, no. Now you're asking me a specific question about a real thing, and of course I can't say that I wouldn't have shut schools down because my shitlit Democratic base still thinks that that's the thing you're supposed to do because we're actually the ones who are anti-science. The Democrats were the ones who are actually spouting propaganda directly from big pharma that had no basis in science and that's why we locked down that's why we had mandates that's why we had mask mandates and none of it was based in science none of it and we had a vaccine that they said was going to stop the 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 pandemic and of course that was never true you'd have done everything differently rick but he can't but he won't say one thing but he won't say one thing he would have did differently he's ready all right that's um, there's still about 10 minutes left of that, but I'm going to stop it there because um, I feel personally like vindicated by this. Um, just testing. Sabrina, can, are you with me? Can you hear me? Yes, I hear you. Okay. There's not feedback, uh, is there? Nope. No. Okay, yeah, good. no feedback. Wonderful. All right. I was just logging into the dashboard, actually. So I'm I'm looking at this now, too. So that's good. Oh, goodness, my dog. Hold on just one second. Go ahead, and I'm going to just. No problem. I'm going to tell yeah. them. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this is my state. So this is, like, personally, like, vindicated uh, um, interview for me because I've said since I, – I, I'm not going to say day one because I was trauma-based mind-controlled for about two weeks. But after that, I, you know, my, my logical brain kicked in 
And oh, okay, so um, now you're talking about the lockdowns, is that right? I had to take my headset off. I don't know why my family can't control two animals for a few hours. I apologize. Oh, I'm a dog walker, border caretaker. I totally get it. I have heckle birds <laughs> who are covered about to ramp up right now. Like they usually like make their presence when I'm doing my show from three <laughs> to six. I don't know if you can hear them yet, but I've got two parakeets and they're like. I can very lightly. Yeah, because they're just ramping up because they're like, and another thing that's coming next, you know, but they are covered. So hopefully they don't get too over the top. But like, this is what I've been preaching in California for years, for many years now, um, that masks not only um, are irrelevant when it comes to the spread, but cause problems. You know, whoever thought up the fact that covering up your breathing holes to uh, to prevent a respiratory virus, um, you know, some special place for that dude or chick. You know what I mean? Like, Well, the worst what part about it is that anybody that's ever worked with OSHA should have automatically dismissed anything out of hand. That's the most frustrating thing, I think, to me, is that you couldn't even talk to people in the construction industries and the, um, oh, I don't know, the gas industry, all these different places that have to use different levels of breathing apparatuses, true breathing apparatuses, up to full system apparatuses. My husband worked with um, uranium in Wyoming, and they had to have the full respirator system if there was a problem there. That's more what you're talking about when you're talking about trying to prevent some sort of breathable contagion. Masks well, are really, literally meant for contaminants of a dust or debris-style level, ash, things like that. They're not meant for anything of a part, of a beyond particulate level, right? Right. Well, and, and I can tell you, as I, I ran dental off. I don't want to say I ran dental offices for 10 years. I worked in dental and you know, front office, back office, I did, I have my x-ray license, coronal polishing license, CPR, all of that stuff. Plus I knew, you know, the procedure, I I have a very well rounded um, uh, knowledge of dental up until the point of, I don't pull teeth, but I, I am licensed for a lot of things. Right. And I, anyway, Long story so short. So masks aren't for anything other than to keep your saliva and things off of people's no. body cavities, right? They're not to prevent pathogens when you're in those situations. Bacteria, if a bacteria is a pathogen, then that's what they're meant to stop. And I can tell you that as somebody who did like front office, basically, quote unquote, an, a dental insurance expert, laughable because it's, it's not even insurance. But all the way explaining all of the procedures, why you need them, what kind of things you can do per frequency, all of these things. Um, I did answers the phone, schedules the books. I did everything, front and back office, which is why I say I ran dental offices. So when we were trained yearly by OSHA for clinical OSHA training, meaning a certain number of blood-soaked gauzes were produced from your clinic per year. That's the criteria for clinical versus uh, the industry, 
like the, you know, they had, uh, and, and there is a lot of crossover between the two. But when we're talking about something that has to do with blood-borne pathogens, dental is definitely in that clinical, the same clinical criteria as the medical facilities. And I can tell you that my 10 years of clinical OSHA training, and they drilled it into the people who went from front office to back office, very diligently that if you walked from a clinical room in operatory and walked to the front office to answer a phone, you could not have gloves on. You could not have a mask on. And if you did this and an OSHA inspector walked into our clinic and said, or private practice and said, you know, and saw me with a mask under my chin and gloves on my hand answering the phone, that would be an infection control violation. Oh, absolutely. But I mean, I'm talking about it even beyond that. When you're in an operating room, whether it's dental or uh, body operation, those masks wouldn't protect you from a biological contamination. No. Say that there what was they, bad and, and blood or something that could go airborne. Let me, just, it's, let me just really, like, quit, like, just quickly finish my thought by saying that those masks are protect you in front of an open body cavity. My bacteria falling into your open body cavity. That's what the masks are for in the operating exactly. room or the operatory. It is, has, they have nothing to do with viruses. No. End of story. Exactly. Anything airborne. It, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It could be a poisonous gas. It, it can translate if it's in the air through those masks, period. Yes. Yes. So specifically for bacteria so that oh, you don't yeah. have infections in your open body cavity. That's what, you know. And so that's why it was very laughable for, the, for people who have these OSHA trainings to, to acquiesce to this. To be like, and yeah, it was that's so broad spread. Like I'm saying, you're not just talking the medical field with the AMA and the Comparable Dental Association forcing things down their throat, tying their medical licenses to it. You're talking about things like where my husband works in the industrial arena, where exactly. they still utilize different levels of masking. Exactly. And they went and along the... with it hand and foot in but both what's the common areas. Denominator? What's the common denominator? I, I, oh, you yeah. tell me. I'm not sure what oh, one you're yeah. looking for. I'm thinking like sheep or <laughs> go ahead. But it, isn't it OSHA? Well, absolutely. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Yep, absolutely. But I just can't see the men that I grew up with and the women that wanted to be in these industrial fields so readily kowtowing to it. It just blew my mind when it's like telling you that water doesn't keep you alive and everybody just yes. going along with it. Right. And, and I actually had an interaction with a, um, uh, during COVID we were assigned, uh, my husband was still, uh, an essential employee being a, a doc master at that time, not to diminish what he did before, but it was a, an essential duty. Um, and you know, so we were, you know, um, I, I guess in, in the thick of, um, of it, we were all, all allowed to go 
to work, but there were so many others that were like, um, I, I don't know, like duped into staying home. I, I it's, um, it, it's a, it was a really weird time. A lot of us woke up to the difference between essential and non-essential and, uh, and, and got duped into go. How did so many people, in your opinion, get duped into, I guess, understanding uh, or complying with, with Well, I mean, there's a lot of components to it. The people that did go to work that were essential workers still to some degree chose that because people could choose what was considered free money to stay at home. Right. So it wasn't even just buying into all of this. It was also the component of not participating with this work system that is so broken as well as fear, you know, and in California, it was so different than what we experienced here in Utah we were back in business almost full-fledged within about two months here in Utah. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, not to get off track, but like what I was, you know, what I experienced running dental offices for 10 years, being out of the field and then getting a dental appointment for my children, saying that all the people who were going to be in the waiting room had to wear masks. Oh, that was so horrible. Oh, you know, we both struggled with that so hard during yeah. that time period. And I even had an experience with an office manager, you know, who, who had, I asked her, I was like, I, I forget her name, but, you know, Miss, how many years have you been answering this phone? How many years have you been in this field? Oh, about 20 to 30. Okay, so can you please tell me as a as a professional when you were ever uh, fined for not wearing a mask in the front area or for the people in your waiting room wearing a mask? I mean, this is, can, can you please give me an answer of, of, is this new for you too? And she's like, yep, it is, but that's what the doctor wants us to do. It, it's very much this, like, I was ordered to do it mentality. And and she even admitted to me, kind of like off the record, yeah, this is crazy, but this is what I have to do to keep my my job, you know. And that was hard for me because I'm trying to like, I mean, this was my profession for ten, you know, for ten years I worked in this field, and I and I knew that that person that was on the same level as me knew what OSHA was a few years ago. It, it's a few weird. years ago, at that point, you're talking days ago to some degree. Well, I remember talking to somebody in the hospital. Well, 2020 is when it happened, though. That's when all of the rules changed. Up until that point, that's what all of those laws had been. Yeah. You know, you're, that's what I'm saying. You're talking days, months at most. Those things meant those things until they said that blue wasn't blue anymore. It was purple. Yeah. You know, yeah, the, and then the whole system changed. Again, it's because we allow it, right? I mean, you and I fought it the entire time. You know, I can't tell you exactly the date that I put up my live stream when I went into Walmart, but it was so fast. And I really feel like showing people 
that they don't have to do these things. The uh, gangster gardener showing people that you can get a cooperative going on up until it gets the attention of the LA Times and create a system-wide change. Now, he didn't really say exactly how far he got in that process, right? At least I didn't catch that part. It's legal now to grow. Yep. And did did it say that in the podcast? Did he have a part in that or? Yeah. Yeah. Very wonderful. It became became legal because of it. It's still illegal in San Diego technically, but there's no enforcement. Well, San Diego has such a different environment already than L.A. County, you know. Yes. And, of course, each of those counties is so varied in themselves. Yep. However, in San Diego County, I can tell you that we managed it. We had strength in numbers. And and mm-hmm. then L.A. got it, too. It, it's, it is, you know, it's a different political climate, but it's the same growing zone. You know what I mean? Like, that's what Absolutely. I'm talking about. You know, like, that's, let's, you know, there, there are so, we in California grow all of your food virtually. All of it. California and Florida, baby. Yeah. So, can, so but that's we, a regretful situation. Really, it says extreme things about the productivity of those regions, but it also says something about the lack of productivity that could be seen in the others because we don't take those steps. We could turn all of our properties into things that were still usable in the way that we see property. If you replace your grass with clover, you can actually eat clover. It's there. It's food. People don't think about it, but they go to the grocery store and they buy their clover sprouts. You can have that as your lawn. We can replace everything that we do. All of the beautiful landscaping that we do can be geared towards indigenous or native, as it's really more termed in the agricultural world, and food sourced plants. Food sourced. Exactly. And, you know, Oregon and Washington are such great examples of that. I'm trying to get that mentality to grow here in Utah. I'd love to get involved with the Wasatch uh, Community Gardens and the Jordan River Trail. And I've kind of talked to them both and thrown it out there when they were doing some surveys and things. I haven't seen much back. One of the initiatives that's going to be as I move more and more into collectively rewilding as my focus will be to get in touch with those entities in a more personal manner, even going to them if I need to, though I'm a little bit out in the sticks as they consider it here in the Salt Lake Valley. But I'll do what I've got to do because a food forest saves so much more than just our individual food sovereignty. It is that, but it is what the gangster gardener was talking about as well. The soil being the community, the community being the soil, all of us working better if we're each more individual, uh, individually healthy. And that's what collectively rewilding is too, right? Yeah. Coming together to be a force for each other and against that which would harm us. Right. And another um, interview, he went more into detail about how for years there was a, a toilet sitting on the side of the road and that being part of his journey is that on one of these easements, one of these little strips of land, um, somebody had demoed a house and, and there was a um, basically a construction 
haul for like six months to a year sitting on the side of, of the road and nobody called the police. You know, nobody, you know, thought that that was a, um, was a problem, right? But then he planted his food forest and somebody complained and the city took action. And that was one of his like, you know, um, so to speak, coming to Jesus moments is that, you know, the, this construction, there was literally a toilet sitting on the side of the road and nobody said anything. But now that somebody's trying to feed the community, somebody complains. And that really was like a, a, the moment where he's like, this is what the city thinks of us, is that we're toilets, that we're shit, that we have no value. And so, you know, that was his, let's graffiti the city with food and see what see what they do really I understand what you're saying and that's probably more important is that how do you I think it's all a part of it really right yeah but here we but in San Diego in Los Angeles we can grow you know I've gotten about 20 um passion fruit this week off of vines me and my family are like living on it because of so many people who are growing food on the side of the road in San Diego I bet you also in LA, you know, and so I hope to be the roadmap. We need to be the roadmap for the rest of the country. This is how you do it. Um, Well, and there are other communities across the globe that do this already, right? They just live like this. I have a couple of friends that are living in Japan. Um, They love it. The communities go out and work on the community spaces that are, yes, providing food back to the community. And it's just a part of their cultural activities. And it's not even thought about. It's just something that they do. And I don't know, but I've seen pictures of North Korea, and it looks like they might have something like that as well. Every house is just surrounded by all this lush lush vegetation that while it looks controlled, it also looks integrated. It doesn't look separated from the natural environment. And look at the rice fields in places like Thailand and the Philippines and things like that that have been there for God knows how many years. Yeah. Hundreds, thousands probably. And they're still utilizing that same ground. We're doing it wrong. There are monks in the French Alps that have had the same plots of land going since at least the 1600s. And their soil isn't depleted. We're doing it wrong. It can be done right, and it is out there to find, again, that same knowledge that used to be something that we all knew. I read an article today about a study that they did about these dark earth patches in the South American Amazon jungles because the Amazon is notorious for having very poor soil, right? That's where the deforestation, they come in, they cut down trees and they put cattle on it and then the soil is completely wasted because that soil wasn't actually very nutritive to begin with it's a little bit acidic or even a lot acidic and it's all in the canopy well the indigenous peoples still today and back they think thousands of years probably definitely several thousand created these dark earth patches by spreading their ashes and their waste That's why I'm saying we do it wrong with our sewage systems even. While you don't want dark earth soil as the type where we think of it here, meaning night soil, this sort of dark earth does, after a point, become better soil. 
you have to give it a time period, though. You can't go out and start planting in it tomorrow. And so right. these are there's, done there's an over... amendment process. Exactly. And they, they can prove that these dark earth patches were centered around and spread out in, like, wagon wheel formations. And it improves the quality of the soil throughout the entire Amazon where these patches are. We can interact and be sustainable. We just have to rethink everything that we do today and a lot of times look back to what has already been done and then discounted by this chemical, mechanized world that we think of as normal. Well, right, and especially when it comes to food and waste, right? So, exactly. Um, I can well, tell and you soil. That, yeah, well, right, but, you know, as part of the circle of life, you know, when it comes to the dark patches and things like that, like, I think there's a lot of uh, chemicals going into our soil um, from waste that haven't been there before, you know? Oh, like gosh, think about the fish that show cancer drugs, right? That's a form of waste. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, exactly. And, like, I can tell you that even just from anecdotally, um, my, you know, and I feel like everybody should feel the same way about their families as I do about my dog, and I, I claim to. But I can tell you that my dog died, you know, dogs die younger than humans do. So what do I do? I make, you know, um, amendments to my dog's diet that will help her live longer, right? So my dog is 10 years old now. I can tell you that from the time that uh, we started, we get, you know, we stopped the kibble, the dead food, and started um, their ancestral diet, her ancestral diet. Um, her poops went from huge, she's a German shepherd, to the size of, there's a um, a chihuahua right across the street that I walk a couple times a week, and this chihuahua's poops are as big as my dog's. Because Did it minimize eats. the amount of food that your dog ate at all? Did it increase no, it? it increased it. Now, I love what you're doing with your animals. Don't get me wrong. I have animals as well. But that's another thing that we have to think about, too, and that I think would be a good solution. I don't want to have to not have animals. You don't want to not have animals. But we have too many, especially carnivorous pets, per acre, per mile, whatever one wants to quantify it as. Just as an example, the three houses right here in my little stretch on this street, it's a very short portion. They do cul-de-sacs and short streets here a lot. And there, uh, there are only three houses. There are, what, four, five dogs and four cats, I think, in three homes right here. Mm-hmm. There would never be an ability to sustain that in a natural environment for that many medium-sized predators to a large predator with the Great Danes that we have next door for this area, right? That's almost as big as the mountain lion. It's not, but it's approaching it. It's approaching that large predator size. And so that is not sustainable. But I don't want people not to be exposed to pets. Our children have more allergies when they don't have pets around, right? And farm animals. So all of these things can be communalized if we agreed to do that. There could be a cat and a dog that are in the neighborhood, that it's set up where we don't have all of this traffic. We shouldn't be traveling to the lengths that we do if we want to go towards truly sustainable lifestyles, not even for the energy that it takes, but also because of the compaction of soil that occurs with all of these ton weight vehicles 
pressing down our soil, all the concrete that's required for it, all of the digging that's required to create that concrete. They're all parts of becoming a more sustainable community. And I'm not mm -hmm. saying to eliminate all of that entirely. I'm saying rethink it all so that we don't have to eliminate things entirely. Be smart about it. Don't be stupid about it until you have to restrict everything. And they can even try to lock us up in our cages of homes because we've let them keep us active in this non-sustainable fashion until they're ready to euthanize us all, you know? We have to redo it. We have to rethink it. Right. We have to turn our backs on the system. Exactly. Withdraw the consent. Yeah. Which and is I, what and, you're and doing I, with your sidewalk gardening, right? At the yeah. most basic, simple, beginning level for anyone. Right. Well, not just for anyone. Okay. I can tell you that me and my fam, we're fine. We've got a farm. We're um, a mile away from a desal, um, desal plant. So we turn salt water into regular water. We have rain Which you can barrels. do at home, right? You know, there are yep. channels out there on YouTube that teach you how to desalinate water at a low level, which when you're right by yep. the ocean, you could do in sustainable levels for a small yep. family. You could keep going. Yep. We, yeah, we have solar panels. We have, you know, uh, backup grids. We have our, our solar grids. We have chickens, you know, uh, me and my fruit, vegetable gardens, all of it we're cool. We're, we're going to be okay. What I don't want is for people in an urban area to be like, well, let's just go attack that farm. Like let's. Well, and if we aren't prepared as a group, that is what will happen if it comes yeah. to those levels. Right. I want to make this, this landing as soft as possible, you know? Exactly. And that really is, that's it. I mean, I can't say it enough. That is the goal for collectively rewilding. And it's also to promote all of these people that are out there doing it. Because while we're living in this for cash society, <laughs> better than a cashless, but still not as, as good as it could be, I don't think. However, while we're living in the system that is working for these uh, fiat-based currency pieces, we can take back so much of our lives. Going remote work is a big part of stopping the traffic, gardening for ourselves, doing as Ty says, and learning how to mend your clothing, and not buying new clothing, using the things that are in the thrift store, getting to know your local farmers. All of these different pieces are a beginning to building that framework for existing together. Even if we haven't all learned the skills, if we've started working with our friends and our families and our neighbors, we can even help to defend ourselves if it comes to that, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And, you know, coming in and overtaking our little urban, you know, homestead isn't necessarily the best thing to do when we can. We share um, so much of our produce, so much of our eggs, you know, that it, it, this could be um, a distribution point. But when we're talking about society going away, um, that's just the pre-prescribed uh, society. We could make it so much better. And and honestly, like when, you know, my show is Seeds of Change. It's, I, I've been planting seeds so long, I think I should change my show to Sprouts of Change because there's so oh, many Oh, you know, it sounds there. good, but I think you'd lose something in the translation, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's true. 
That's true. But, you know, like joking aside, I think there's so many people out there that are actually doing this. It gives me so much hope for the collective, you know, for humanity that, um, you know, I, I, I say several times a show that I read the end of the book and, and we win. Um, so this is more of a, a scribe moment. Um, we've been trying to walk the walk and, sh- you know, lead people to, um, to, to being okay when this inevitability happens um, that, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just feel like we read the end of the book, the book and we win. So I, I can't. Well, all feel books it. that I've ever read say that we win, right? Yes. Yeah. It's kind of funny when you, when you put it in those terms, what I hear is that the light always wins and it, it does when you're talking literature, history, lies can't last forever. The truth out, yes. nature out, you know, these are terms for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and I'm going to play another 10 minute clip. Um, probably have heard it before. I play this stuff. Um, it's shameful plug for my show. Um, I play this stuff so often. We talk about the tomes, right? How throughout the, you know, throughout history, um, all major civilizations have known these same truths, whether you want to talk about the, um, the biblically based or the, um, you know, the, the mysteries, right? That's the yeah, way the I, Samaritan, I Yep. The mystery based, exactly. The Buddhist, the, you know, all of the, um, uh, what is the um, ethic of Gilgamesh, Samaritan texts, right? All of these great civilizations um, all come to the same conclusion. None of them really knew each other when they came to these beliefs, but all of them kind of have the same understanding of what is going on now and, and what we are living through. And so if I may, I'd like to play an audio clip of, um, the, uh, of a, an Egyptian prophecy from Graham Hancock. Um, if you're, if you're okay with that, Sabrina, are you good? Oh, absolutely. I'm learning here. I'm not the director. Okay. Awesome. Um, if you've, if you've heard this fine, I'd love your opinion at the end. If you haven't same statement. Okay. So here we go. Three, two, one. We live at a crossroads, there's no doubt. We all feel it, we all know it. I don't think it's the first time that mankind has stood at such a crossroads. But here we are now facing it and hopefully dealing with it. I'm going to close with a reading from the Hermetica from the Hermetic texts. Hermes was the Greek version of the ancient Egyptian god Thoth. The Romans knew him as uh, Mercury. And uh, in a dialogue, the Hermetica, many of them are dialogues between Thoth, Hermes, and 
various pupils of his. And in one called the Asclepius, uh, a lament is presented. And it's like a prophecy. It's a bit like the Mayan prophecy. Egypt seems to stand as a metaphor for the whole world in this. And to my mind, for the world in our time, this lament, this prophecy is speaking directly to us. So it's Hermes speaking. And he's saying to Asclepius this. Do you know, Asclepius, that Egypt is an image of heaven? Or to speak more exactly, in Egypt, all the operations of the powers which rule and work in heaven are present in the earth below. In fact, it should be said that the whole cosmos dwells in this our land, as in a sanctuary. And yet, since it is fitting that wise men should have knowledge of all events before they come to pass, you must not be left in ignorance of what I will now tell you. There will come a time when it will have been in vain that Egyptians have honoured the Godhead with heartfelt piety and service, and all our holy worship will be fruitless and ineffectual. The gods will return from earth to heaven, Egypt will be forsaken, and the land which was once the home of religion will be left desolate, bereft of the presence of its deities. O oh, Egypt, Egypt, of thy religion nothing will remain but an empty tale which thine own children in time to come will not believe. Nothing will be left but graven words, and only the stones will tell of thy piety. And in that day men will be weary of life, and they will cease to think the universe worthy of reverent wonder and worship. They will no longer love this world around us, this incomparable work of God, this glorious structure which he has built, this sum of good made up of many diverse forms, this instrument whereby the will of God operates in that which he has made, ungrudgingly favouring man's welfare, this combination and accumulation of all the manifold things that call forth the veneration, praise and love of the beholder. Darkness will be preferred to light, and death will be thought more profitable than life. No one will raise his eyes to heaven. The pious will be deemed insane. The impious wise, the madman will be thought a brave man, and the wicked will be esteemed as good. As for the soul, and the belief that it is immortal by nature, or may hope to attain to immortality, as I have taught you, all this they will mock, and even persuade themselves that it is false. No word of reverence or piety, no utterance worthy of heaven will be heard or believed. And so the gods will depart from mankind, a grievous thing, and only evil angels will remain, who will mingle with men and drive the poor wretches into all manner of reckless crime, into wars and robberies and frauds and all things hostile to the nature of the soul. Then will the earth tremble, and the sea bear no ships. Heaven will not support the stars in their orbits. All voices of the gods will be forced into silence. The fruits of the earth will rot. The soil will turn barren, and the very air will thicken with sullen stagnation. All things will be disordered and awry. All good will disappear. But when all this has befallen Asclepius, then God 
the creator of all things, will look on that which has come to pass and will stop the disorder by the counterforce of his will, which is the good. He will call back to the right path those who have gone astray. He will cleanse the world of evil, washing it away with floods, burning it out with the fiercest fire and expelling it with war and pestilence. And thus he will bring back his world to its former aspect, so that the cosmos will once more be deemed worthy of worship and wondering reverence. And God, the maker and maintainer of the mighty fabric, will be adored by the men of that day with continuous songs of praise and blessing. Such is the new birth of the cosmos. It is a making again of all things good, a holy and awe-inspiring restoration of all nature, and it is wrought inside the process of time by the eternal will of the Creator. I don't know whether we're going to face some terrible global catastrophe or not. I certainly hope not. I hope it will not come down to misery and horror, awful, awful things. There's enough of that in the world already. But I do remember what all the ancient texts say. There isn't a single flood myth, there isn't a single story of the destruction of past civilizations that don't implicate humanity in the story somewhere. Our own behavior, what we do, is part of what we're bringing down on the world right now. We are, what we are, what we are manifesting in the world, that is what is coming towards us. We are the authors of this thing, and we can change the story if we want to change it. I firmly believe that. Are we looking at the traces of a forgotten episode in human history? I think so. I think that's, that's what's going on here. And because we've forgotten it, because we are a species with amnesia, because we are so much a mystery to ourselves, perhaps it's because of that that we're so lost and so troubled today, so haunted by the sense of something missing, something that we need to know uh, about ourselves. For the ancient Egyptians, the essential mystery of human existence concerned our spiritualness, um, that we are participating in this theater of experience that we call life and the world in, in an immense endeavor aimed at the perfection uh, of the soul. I've talked with shamans uh, in the Amazon, and when I've asked them, what, what do you think is the problem with the world? What, what's the problem with the West? They say it's, it's very simple. You've severed your connection with spirits. You've cut the link. And you have to restore that link if you're going to move forward from here. You can't, you can't move forward from the place you're in if you don't restore the connection to spirit. And that seems to me the most, the most fundamental task uh, that, that all of us now, now face. Not these exterior trappings of power that have brought such horror and misery to the world. This is the moment of crossroads that we stand at. None of us. That's probably uh, I mean, just a minute left, but are you with us, Sabrina? I am. Okay, so I love your thought. I, I've played this so many times. I'd love your thoughts on that. You know, 
it's really like so many, and it feels like there's feedback. There's no feedback? No, no feedback. Okay. okay. Um, there, okay, there we go. That's better. Uh, there are so many elements, like you said, to all of these different stories. And then he said the same thing. And that is true. I heard, you know, the Native Americans, there will be no more fish in the rivers. And I hear New Age philosophy style talks in that. All these different pieces. Um, oh, gosh. There's feedback on my side. Can you take over for just a second so I can yeah, figure no out what's problem. going on? Thank you so yeah. much. Um, exactly. And these are all the stories of, I mean, Revelation is the same thing, right? We're talking about... But we're also talking about um, Noah's Ark, right? Like Noah being part of a, a great human catastrophe. The mud floods. We all know that a lot of us know that there's um, – look up the mud floods. You know, I don't, I don't want to put any – I'm not familiar with – yeah, that's not something I know of. It's basically like a, a, a lot of modern archaeology – not archaeology, but like um, architecture – uh, these basements are full-on cathedrals that were covered in mud. You know, like at recent, like pretty recently, like there were huge, ta- like major towns that were covered in mud. And um, so flood, flood stuff, right? And one thing that he says is that there is no major um, earth catastrophe that wasn't in these stories that wasn't brought on by humans. You know, Atlantis. Right, like the, uh, the these were man-made events, and so if we really want to talk about global warming, I you know or t- you know tide uh, rise, uh, like coastal rise, um, it, what what are we doing? What kind of contamination? What kind of geoengineering are we doing to make these things happen? Because none of these um, you know these these uh, biblical tomes throughout, you know, throughout history, um, these stories throughout history that link civilizations that had no business being linked with their pyramids, with their obelisks, with all of these things that should not have, have been able to happen. There is well, something... you know, it's interesting you talk about those, though, too, because when they talk about the story of the Tower of Babel yes. and all of the humanity spoke, and they lost the languages, right? Or they gained a thousand languages or however the, the narrative it's is. Shattered. Well, the uh, Aborigines, may didn't, maybe they didn't lose it. Um, they still speak with this telecommunication mystery, right? That's pretty well accepted, I think, even amongst the clinical world, right? Yeah. And Frequency. that may be the original language. So... That, too, is a part of the loss. And who knows that what we can get back by getting back in touch with nature and community. You know, as yeah. the original story that you played said, it just, it does. It all cycles together. You know, like you're saying, the circle of life, our stories mimic that. There's actually only five main storylines in the history of humanity. That's actually kind of interesting. And yeah. the once again king and uh, the flood and all of these religious stories follow that as well. But in the end, we do have some power over what it is. That's where you talk about Noah. 
gaining those skill sets, that's a big part of what we're talking about here. And also yes. recognizing what natural system collapse looks like. While I agree with the gentleman that just spoke about the fact that humanity is absolutely a part of this devastating cycle that we're seeing, if not the biggest piece, right? We know there are natural cycles as well. Um, they were preparing in the time for Noah. And the text that this gentleman spoke about said the same kind of thing. You have to get through that dramatic period. Well, you're not going to do that if you're not thinking about it ahead of time for the majority of us. I'm sure there will be exceptions to every rule with this. But in the end, it's just prepping in any way. Like we said, just networking within your community, anything really that you're taking a step towards doing to take back your natural self. And I can't remember, you said something like that earlier about coming back to this place. I can't remember. I can't put it into the context, but that's that was a really good way that you put it earlier. I don't know if you remember what I'm talking about. Well, all of it has to do with going back to um, to um, understanding, remembering where we've already been, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I think that, you know, the Bible has a, has a big way, you know, obviously, like, I don't want to just limit it to the Bible. That's why I bring up, this is um, a, a, an Egyptian um, mm-hmm. prophecy that we just listened to, but it's the same kind of thing. And when we talk about, when we remember where we've been, um, I, I really do think that we, you know, we are a species with amnesia and we are just waking up to the fact that we've already had these, these ancient technologies of, you know, the, the obelisks and the pyramids and these great marvels, wonders of the world that, you know, great mysteries of the world. How did we build the pyramids? How did, why were, why do we have obelisks in every major city throughout human history? You know, what kind of receptors were those? When we remember where we came from, you know, there, there is, you know, always a, you know, the, the risk that somebody will try to take absolute power over these things. But we're coming out of that. We've, we already have people that are controlling our resources, everything down to the things that we need to, to, to do to survive, our air, our food, our information. Right. But once we remember where we came from, the fact that these things are, um, you know, and, and I, I like, you know, I'm not going to like take over with 9-11, but I really do believe that 9-11 was a, a weapons demonstration. And I really do. I, I don't you know, it was a controlled demolition, but it was the same technology that that built the pyramids, but in reverse. Right. So this technology was used to destroy where the pyramids and Stonehenge and the obelisks and the pyramids throughout the world, people were able to master and harness this technology, this um, combination of energies, of frequencies, and able to levitate blocks and, and you know, do things that we can barely do now. Um, well, I mean, they say that Merlin sang the stones into standing, right? And that's yeah. a little bit like what you're talking about with frequencies and things. Yeah. And of course, Merlin yeah. didn't actually come into the storyline until the 1200s, but it's a remembering in that story of what may have been, right? 
Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't that you know, um, the twelve hundreds aren't isn't that like firmly in the dark ages? Absolutely. So it's the beginning. Was it the dark ages, or are we still it's, in the it's dark the ages? Beginning. <laughs> right, right. Well, and that's what I, I when you talked about all these different things that they're doing. You know, when we know what they're doing here, when we know what they're doing there, will we ever even really know? I don't know that we will. I know that there is definitely more already available in still written form that they're deliberately keeping from us. I mean, that's not even a a secret or a conspiracy theory. The Vatican has so many documents that they simply will not allow the public to see. And to some degree that does have to protect the documents. There is some reality to that, but there are things that go well beyond that. The uh, Aleutian mysteries is what I was meaning when I said the mysteries, right? Each culture had their own the druids of course of the celtic world and we don't know anything about really what that culture thought because they had such um they they were living sustainably to the point that they didn't keep uh texts from stones or clay tablets you know it was more like leaves or bark or things like that and so there's so little to know about what maybe their storylines that were that fit that right well, yeah, exactly. Um, and I think we talked on the first show that you were on, on Seeds of Change, talked about Adam and Eve. And and I really do think that these civilizations... Oh, gosh, I haven't thought about that analogy for so long. I, I think about it. I'm not even kidding. I've thought about it like several times a week for a year. I've been marinating on, on that for so long. Um, I You know, I, I just have to thank you. Um, but, oh gosh, walk me back through it. Like I'm trying, we're on live, so my brain isn't pulling it. I used to talk about it all the time. And it, just like my soil analogy, I had moved so many years away from that where now I'm coming back to trying to talk about soil. It, it came back to me, but. Um, but really, it, it, it's about the original sin, not right? having to do with eating fruit, but possibly like wandering into, you know, a, a market and eating something that no I'm not getting the concept back but yeah it it really is all about propaganda and controlling us with their literature yeah in the end right and uh yeah I'm gonna have to spend some time thinking about that because I love that analogy and I used to just live in it for years but it's been so long we forget these things you know Um, yeah right but I I really you know to that point like my my current theory and, and theories definitely can change but my current theory is that the original Sin was going against uh, currency, like trading currency for food. The first resource that was sold was food markets, right? And and Eve walks out of the the market out out of Eden to this market, and and grabs a fig and eats it, and and you know doesn't have the the coin, the currency to pay for it. And people start yelling at her about about stealing and and you know and be and she gets you know uh, embarrassed and okay. covers up with fig leaves. You brought me back to it. Like you see it so differently. That was part of it too. So the beginning of agrarian society, right? That that's mm-hmm. the whole thought is um, when we eat of the tree of good and evil we're stepping out of the natural world and into a manipulated environment, the agrarian revolution. Correct. Yes. So 
that is what I believe that analogy was speaking to. We left our more, uh, what we say now as primitive and civilized. I think that those are such reversed ter- terms. I think that we thought we were so cool because we left the dependence on nature for this dependence on chemicals and false energies and all of this junk, junk food, um, when really those that were civilized were those that lived in tune with nature, really. Right, and grew their own food and did, you know, uh, but To a degree, however, right, but, but yeah. at, a, at a limited, I, I like the Iroquois model for that because when we say grow our own food, we have to be careful because we have this very modernized viewpoint. In fact, yeah. there's never been an actual treatise written on why we till soil. Now, that could have changed um, in the last 20 years. There are no values to tilling healthy soil. If the soil has become so compacted that root structure can't develop in even a weed, then yes, you're probably going to have to have tilling. And there's natural tilling. I was thinking about this just in regards to our dogs. They, the canine species, the uh, feline species, they both dig at different points, as well as all the digging creatures. All of these things are part of the tilling process, right? Yeah. Um, Well, we shouldn't till unless there is a need to till. We're breaking up the health of the soil. And yet in the biblical parables that talk about leaving Eden and breaking the soil with the sweat of our bodies and all of these things, that was our own choice, our own manipulation of self. The Iroquois, instead, they developed the same natural system that was to more align with what they needed. They wanted more blueberries. They propagated blueberries. They needed more um, pitch or tar for their canoes and things. That wasn't a modern thought process to utilize the saps of trees in order to I don't know if it's sealing or lubricating, right? I'm not a ship master or anything. Maybe your husband <laughs> would have, you know, more knowledge about that. But they still use yeah. these, and they've used it for thousands of years. Yeah. And they didn't ruin their environment. They simply promoted the things that were better for them. So we have to recognize that we are natural creatures in ourselves, and we may have tried to remove ourselves from that, ourselves from that. But we, too, drive change if we do it naturally, even if we're not doing this modern yuck. Um, so that is a not in and, itself, in and of itself a, a negative thing. Um, when we talk about these species that are going to almost certainly some of them decline completely, we have to recognize that something will replace it. If we don't remove the ability of this life to sustain life, of this planet yeah. to sustain life, something is going to replace that. What we really need to recognize is those things that replace that might not support human life. That's where we're really cutting off our own noses to spite our our faces because we think it's comfort in the now. You know, we have to, my air conditioner is running. It's 67 degrees outside, but my upstairs neighbor, where we share these facilities because it's a a stick-built home that's been split into two apartments, I have the darn AC running in here a complete waste of energy because we think of the comfort in the now, we may not be able to feed ourselves in the future, but there may be animals that replace the ones that we get rid of that modify themselves to take down us. You know, they're already having to put up so many types of bear traps and things like that in Durango and they're trying to do it humanely. They're not trying to kill the bears and they're trying to work with it more, but we have to start recognizing 
that as Gerard Kenyatta Hay says, if we want to glom into these environments, we're fighting those animals. If instead we move out and we separate ourselves and we start healing these individual plots of land together, but separately, learn to interact with these animals. And yes, some of us may end up eventually having a bear kill us because we're not trying to be the only food source or the only food uh, predator that matters, right? At this point, we can dominate all the bigger predators and knock everything out, but then there's not going to be any food left for us. So we have to start giving and taking, right? You can't get rid of all of the bugs on your property because you don't like ants or you don't like flies or you don't like this or you don't like that. You can promote healthier bugs, better bugs, but then you still are going to have bugs or you're not going to have life at some point. Right. 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 Exactly. Yeah. And that's why I talk about bees so much. It's like, especially around here, I've seen like a huge drop in bee population. And I've also seen in, you know, in conjunction with the, the drop uh, neighbors on um, say it's uh, I've got a, a local Facebook point Loma group um, pe- people talking about whole hives getting um, knocked out, killed because somebody sprayed some pesticide or, you know, whatever it is and, you know, how sad they are that this, who you know, find out who the new company is that killed all of our bees because now we're going to have to get a new beehive. I've seen several, um, you know, stories of this locally where, where huge hives that, you know, people don't realize it, it pollinates. I got, you know, the 20 passion fruits from around my neighborhood uh, over the last couple of days. You know, if we don't have these bugs, we're, you know, we're not going to be able to... Um, to survive. And I don't know how many people realize that. You know, there are uh, people in China already, I, I believe, I'm pretty sure it's China and not Japan, that are having to paint with the pollens in order to cross-pollinate for fruit and continued life of their plants. They're actually going out with paintbrushes and spreading the pollen around. It's just devastating. And that is another thing that Gerard Kenyatta talks about as well with automation, um, automation is seen as taking away jobs and things like this, but there are good things that can come from automation if we choose to take it to those good places. And one that he's talking about is the pollinators and the watering systems and all of this. And that can be a place in the end though, you don't want to just look at bees when you're talking about the native, you've you've gave me so many thoughts, right? The native bees are a big part of it, not just the honeybees. So when we see the European honeybee populations decline, that is then negative. If the local or native bee populations are still going strong, there is some hope there. You have to look at the whole picture. There's many more than just European honeybees. However, they are, sort of like an indicator species simply because we pay so much attention, not in the same concept as like a frog because it's so susceptible to the environment that it's going to indicate changes earlier on than something with an exoskeleton or even our type of skin. Right. Right. Totally true. Right now, like uh, something that San Diego Bay is just going through is, um, excuse me, the, uh, uh, the um, I guess the impact to local clams, you know, with this, oh, this one species of clams that is, um, <clears throat> you know, like very susceptible to copper, 
you know, and they're like, oh, it's going to diminish in these kind of clams, right? Um, but then, like, th- there was um, a local, you know, y- this is, I'm totally oversimplifying this because this is about a decade plus of back and forth of this specific topic about copper in the San Diego Bay. Um, and it's finally completed that there is not, you know, some kind of uh, environmental problem with this clam or with well, of too course much there's copper. Not, right? Yeah, too much copper. No, 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 no. I'm telling you that these people were like draconian. The city, the Port of San Diego, wanted to reduce the basin of boats by 50%. Like that's what this is. Remember, we live in a a, a neoliberal hellscape down here in San Diego, right? Um, but finally, like logic prevailed, I would say, and they finally agreed that they're but especially in San Diego Bay, there is not an excess of copper. And as a matter of fact, the amount of copper that was in the seawater would be okay for even human consumption because it was not because of the salt water. Yeah, obviously we can't drink salt water, but the amount of copper that was in there was less than in a glass of water that comes out of the tap, which was... I don't know. I, I'm really hesitant when I read any of their studies about the levels for safety anymore. I'm not saying yeah. that copper is necessarily the, the specific cause or whatever but did they find out what was going on with these clams are they doing better are they they are they're thriving because of a local um like i said this is like a 10 year plus you know thing but they got local charter schools involved and and dumped this other kind of clam that thrives here that eats up any kind of excess uh copper they love it that you know they they thrive on this kind of copper uh and these oysters counterbalance the environment and so that so now these copper um uh what's it called um resistant clams are now thriving as well but they're not out competing the ones that were being saved no as a matter of fact the the population of this uh copper uh, intolerant clam is growing because any kind of excess uh, and we're talking about like nanoparticles like that's how oh absolutely I just say that because they've raised the radiation limits they've raised the this the that the others I can't even tell you because I'm not into the chemical world I've read it though over and over about how they oh it used to not be but now it's safe and I I'm just so hesitant with all of their limits whether it's to limit us to say the limits are fine. I just don't trust anything that they say. And then now you're saying that a species that does enjoy the copper, uh, proliferate on the copper, seems to have moderated the system, but they said it wasn't the copper. And so still, I'm I'm curious. I, I just tear apart so many things, right? Yeah, no, no problem. I'd love for you to, to look into it. Look, it's um, high tech high in Point Loma is the one mm-hmm. that, that is doing this study with uh, this uh, the professor that's in charge of it is John Adriani, um, and he is, uh, you know, a you know marine biology chemist that is absolutely. You know, and I don't think he's the one being dishonest. It seems to me the people saying that copper had no place in it, and yet his solution that involved copper <laughs> seems to be working. It just doesn't seem to correlate to me, right? Well, but, what, With, but this was. I think that the the copper 
the the one that was copper intolerant was mm-hmm. a non-native. It, you know, there, there's, mm-hmm. yeah, it wasn't, but now they're, now that there is a, you know, they're looking at this non-tolerant or intolerant copper clam that's not native, they're going to, you know, do something to counteract this. And the one that is copper tolerant happens to be a native clam anyway, muscle anyway. So that's so wonderful. Um, yeah. And so now there's some kind of a balance that, that, that these people can look at. And the base and the long story short is that the, the boats in the basin are safe. Well, you know, we do need those boats. Absolutely. Again, I think we should try to start looking at how many we need, but absolutely. Right. Yeah, no, that's for sure. And this is a man-made basin anyway. So like, mm-hmm. you know, but, but again, like there's, they do this in California, like look at, you know, the Delta smelt argument, right? Like the, the reason that we, okay. So there, there's this, this thing in California that we let hundreds of millions of gallons of uh, fresh water flow into the ocean because of some kind of fish. They, there was this kind of like shore up of um, the Delta Pass in Northern California um, that allowed agricultural land to collect rainwater and, and send it to their farms. But because of this bait fish called the Delta smelt, only place in the world, uh, it was extremely, extremely um, endangered. And so because of that, they, they let millions, hundreds of millions throughout the years drain into the Pacific Ocean because of this fish, because of this bait fish, because it was that endangered. And ultimately, now this fish is, you know, many years later, this fish is is extinct. But and so I'm just curious, what what were they doing? Were they trying to create like estuary conditions that had been taken away? They were trying to recreate it for this fish. I'm, I'm yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was the only in uh, the only habitat in the world where this fish, this bait fish, lived. Right, and so and and shoring up rainwater. For the uh, from the Sierras, you know, from the mountains to that, you know, always went to the the farmers, um, killing this this fish and its only natural habitat. And so, because of that, for many years, a decade, I'd say, um, water has been, uh, you know, fresh water, snow impact water has been flowing straight into the Pacific Ocean. Um, Which isn't how it would work to create an estuary in the first place. Like, I don't understand how they thought that that would in any way emulate a natural environment if you don't take a lot of different, there's sand banks and trees and rotted trees. And in California, they were trying, they were trying like hell to to make this like the the habitat where this fish um, would thrive to the detriment (laughs) of farmland to everyone in the country is what I'm saying is that this fish they were saying was in charge what was the the primary reason why we could not use the rainwater coming off of the mountains to to water the crops uh, for the whole country the the whole idea when they do these one species thing is so ridiculous anyway, just like our bodies when they focus just on the heart or just on the brain or just on the kidneys 
We're entire systems. That one fish was indicative of so many other species that were lost. It's when yeah. we change things, we have to accept that they've been changed. People want to drain Lake Powell. What would you get if you drained Lake Powell? You would not get back the ecosystem that once was. No. It doesn't, you can't go back in time that way. The earth will heal itself from whatever we've done to try to reverse the damage in such drastic fashions won't fix what has already been broken. Um, I'm not completely in love with all of this gentleman's teachings, but the Garden of Eden documentary about gardening, have you heard that one? Uh, mm. Like a Possibly, like back back to Eden or whatever. Yeah, maybe. Something like that. And he's talking about how he just looked at the forest and then he tried to bring that into his land and he tied that yeah. all into yeah. a big book of context. Um, I really liked a lot of what he was thinking and that's really how I felt my entire... I never understood why they thought growing plants in rows was a good idea. I just looked at that as a child and that made absolutely no sense to me. The idea of tilling never made sense to me. And when we do things that are so totally against what we see in nature, I don't know why we think that we can take that that has been broken and then replicate what once was. We have such a little understanding of all of the different dynamics that tie together. We're just now understanding the fun fungi in the soil that help them to communicate and the fact that forests will keep trees essentially that have lost their life. They no longer have uh, much more than a stump, but the forest itself keeps that tree alive because it utilizes those root systems throughout the whole forest for communication and nutrient transfer and who knows what all. Um, and to think that we could break something and then have enough knowledge to unbreak it is so contrary to my thought process. Right, exactly. You know, and, and that goes back to like everybody's, you know, like the all of mainstream is talking about like climate change, right? And and to to, you know, really be like so naive to think that it, you know, we that uh celebrities that that build their homes on the edges of of water that is supposed to be underwater in 10 years and that insurance companies still um insure properties like that it's it's um it's so it is really contrary to um you know to to the narrative in so many ways and for you know people need to wake up to the fact that yes the climate is is changing it's always changed um we can't pay with our tax dollars uh to to plan it away um you know, and, and there Seriously, is and as, focusing on carbon again, exclusively, right? Exactly. Exactly. And there is such thing as climate contamination that we should be focusing on, but that's not causing the sea level to rise. That's causing local populations to suffer and to not thrive. You know what I mean? Like the, the sea has risen. The sea has been so much higher than, than it is right now and so much lower than it is right now. Um, and to think that our tax dollars would have anything to do with that change is especially kind of then when you see articles about how the moon is leaving the Earth's gravitational uh, pull. Have you read about that? A little bit, yeah. Yep. You know, it's we're going to control it though. We're we're going to fix it just because because we said so. You know, that's what 
blows my mind. You know, the elite, the 1%, it's on the advertisement here where I'm not able to see where I'm calling in uh, the show's studio dashboard. I'm looking at Mm -hmm. the advertisement. And the 1%, they really think that they're so valuable because they say things with their words and then it happens. But how did it happen? Well, Uh somebody else actually took those words and then said them again. They didn't even do anything and down the line. And now they're seeing it collapse. And even those that have money are going to have a problem accomplishing their end goals when you can't get um, the base level workers to go and get the jobs. Every single yeah. industry across the board, at least here in Utah still, can't get people to go to work. There's people out there that could go to work, but they're not going to go to work. And why would they? When houses cost $400,000 out the door, a junk house, right? And then everything, though, that goes from there. If you can't get people to build the roads, how do the people transport the goods? No matter how rich you are, you can't get something through on a broken down road without specialized equipment again. And now the equipment itself is falling apart because nobody even knows how to do the work anymore. That's what I was talking about with the end of a natural collapse. They may think their machinations are collapsing it, but the natural system itself is collapsing before their machinations can even take place as we watch them fail in real time as well. Yeah, yeah. There's um, there's this uh, Facebook reel, um, I think it's called uh, the Thatch guy or the Thatcher guy, um, and all he does is um, – thatched roofs, right? So straw roofs, you know what I mean? And it's like... Absolutely. I was wondering if it was going to be that because, of course, that is a last name, but people don't realize where it came from. Yes, exactly. No, 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 you're totally right because because this is a dying um, trade. But you know what? I think that, you know, since we still do live in the dark ages, we are going to have to uh, add to our zombie apocalypse teams like, we all think that the zombie apocalypse is going to start by McDonald's one-cent cheeseburgers. But really, like, it, it, it's really this deterioration of our remembering of the species with amnesia. And I think that, um, you know, this, my zombie apocalypse team, yeah, it'll have some people with guns on it. But that, you know, the Thatcher guy, no, no, he's coming with me. because And the masonry can, person as well. Yes, I tell you and, what, and that's a big the deal. The pointers, ones who can build the chimneys. Those mm-hmm. are the ones you want to know, not the computer guys. Maybe one computer guy, but that one. Yeah, I think there guy is can... still some value in it. You know, like Gerard yeah. said, there is some value to that as well, and I would love to have that too. You know, my father's an electrician. I don't want to lose the ability to utilize electricity. I want to look yeah. at it in a sustainable fashion, right? Right. Yes. And that's actually the difference, I think, in my opinion, my line between the dark ages and the light ages, you know, into lightness is the the ability to harness energy forms that it's right now food yeah that energy right now you know. are being hidden from us absolutely so yeah i do believe that we're going to need some solar panels we're going to need some some generators some energy generators whatever that may be whatever that may look like um well you know, what do what, you do if it collapses and you can't make copper wire i mean you have to think even beyond that right what i'm thinking is going back in thought too to how we build our dwellings and then taking it of course with the modern thoughts involved they built their walls maybe you know a foot thick because it kept it cool and it kept it warm very easily yeah. 
right? Earth gathering water all the time, all of these pieces, you know, and we have six minutes left, so I don't know how we do this. So I'm going to let you kind of control the scene from here. No, but you're totally right. There are certain, like, like when you talk about earth shifts, um, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, taking, it's a technology, basically it's a theory of growing, uh, of building your house that incorporates your waste incorporates your, you know, your heating and cooling um, and, and so on and so forth with recycled. And then I think on front of an earth ship, you should have a greenhouse. Yes. That's all. That is part of an earth ship is, is a. The models that I've seen never have included it. Oh, the ones I have. Yeah. Uh, Taos, New Mexico. There's a whole mm-hmm. community like that where it, and all of them, all like a, a like a real earth ship always has a wall of glass with it with yes absolutely but i'm talking about extending it out from that wall of glass and actually having a full greenhouse on the front of it where Mm. you're growing food all year you walk out your front door but you're not into your yard yet you're into your greenhouse and then you would go further out into your yard yeah you could grow inside as well though you know don't close off your light right there's ways to work around all of it. I just think that yeah. there are so many solutions out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Under, yeah. Utilizing the ground and the, and the terrain and all of these things uh, are part of building the, you know, the new reality, right? That's- yes. And civilizations have lived underground off and on in different parts of the world for thousands of years again. Yeah. This is when, not a new when, thought. Yeah. Exactly. I, I believe when um, humanity hasn't played a part in destroying what's going on above ground, people go below. And, and I think that we um, learned a whole lot from that that's still kind of being hidden from us. Um, mm-hmm. But where do we start? And that's, where, that's why I focus so much on food and news, right? And, and well, if you and want to really start and you're talking going underground, have your uh, oh goodness, your little shadow box. What's it called? Um, cold storage type, cold frame. There we go. Your little cold mm. frame where you just have like your window frame over a six inch to a twelve inch depth hole in the ground. And if that's where you start, that is a big start. Some people have never even grown a seed outside of watching it germinate in the wet paper towels and first grade right exactly yes right um and we've all had our 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 coming to jesus moments about how we don't really know what our food is supposed to look like and i think that um collective rewilding is a really uh important step to uh to getting people to see that even growing herbs like let's see if we can keep your basil alive you know in your fluorescent kitchen light like that's something that people should do it's hard we've had a lot of apartments that were dark you and I've talked about it and you challenged me and I'm telling you there have been apartments that we've had in Utah that we could not keep life keep alive plants without artificial light and it's already happening and then we have tried artificial light and oh it it's rough it's a definite learning curve so it's something to play with now while you have multiple options it is not yeah. easy to grow indoors with artificial light. And they, it seems like it used to be a lot easier. I think they took it away. There were lighting systems back in the day, and, of course, I know it from a different context than food, but there were lighting systems back in the day that very easily could be thrown into a closet and keep a plant alive. And the plants 
lights that I bought for, uh, specifically for that purpose that were so much more advanced did not yeah, uh-huh. do anywhere. Go ahead. No, you're totally right. Um, I've grown many a tomato indoor. And, um, you know, it's not the same as growing it outdoors. You have to. Uh, no, but know, there used there's... to be lights, and they just looked like fluorescent lights, like you're talking about. Yeah. And you could really do a grow in your closet, right? Like you had a certain kind of plant, and it requires and I, a lot yeah. of light. Those plants Absolutely. like 12 hours of light a day. But it didn't have any specialty kind of framework. You just went to the darn garden shop, and you could buy it. And it was there, but now when you go and look online, they don't even offer that same type of lighting system. No, totally. They've taken it um, away. Do you see what I'm saying? Well, I do. I do. And I wasn't really talking about tomatoes, but um, I did right. success- <laughs> yeah, successfully grow a nice big crop of it. And I do think that, you know, there is a, an exact science of growing indoors that has to mimic outdoors. It's a whole science in wind and humidity and lighting and how many lights, you know, hours of lights per day and that you we have, have mastered because of our, right. because of this one specific non-edible, yes, edible crop um, <laughs> that, you know, that we know now. And I think that mm-hmm. honestly, everybody should be looking up that, especially if you live in a place that, that has uh, cold or, um, you know, harsh elements, look up how mm-hmm. to, grow um sorry to say weed marijuana on you know inside <laughs> and i was going to add add uh, hydroponics to that as well hydroponics right. is another one too and then you adding can grow that plant that. you can grow tomatoes and cucumbers inside you know what i mean absolutely absolutely yeah. they don't require nearly the same amount of sunlight exactly exactly mm-hmm. so grow that one plant and you'll be able to grow any plant um but so with that we're at the end of the show um that's a great place to end it um, uh, thank you so much, Sabrina. Um, happy birthday, Dave. Um, we're at the end now, about five seconds left. So, um, share if you can. Love you and talk to you soon. Bye.